We're doing villains now, I'm Dracula. Villains. Dracula. Welcome to Pass the Golden Popcorn, an MTV Movie Awards podcast where we look at the various films nominated for MTV Movie Awards in various categories and try and figure out who really should have won. I'm Kenny Sage, a foremost movie expert. And I'm Ben Gregg, a foremost villainy expert. And joining us this uh, this week her, for her second appearance on the pod, uh, cable installation expert Jesse Catherine Weber. How's it going, Jesse? I am doing just wonderfully. Uh, we definitely haven't uh, rescheduled this recording several times, and it definitely has not had to do with any uh, unexpected health issues. Yeah, this definitely wasn't in the works for over a month. <laughs> yeah. Did it, did it. And we definitely didn't, in some cases, watch some of these movies roughly a month ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's all right. We got yeah. we got Scream leak out of it. Which yeah, I think, was... I think. Well, that's that's yeah. good. And I think I think there's still plenty to talk about here, even if we are prepared to talk about these movies at different levels. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I I think. Um, I feel like I finished The Cable Guy sometime last week, and then, like, probably about, like, a day or two days, I watched, like, a movie. Um, so this is probably, like, the longest I've had to, like, ruminate on, like, these movies. Um, well, let me tell you, I've had no time to ruminate <laughs> on The Cable Guy, which I finished about 15 minutes ago. <laughs> well, it's good. You know, it's always... Uh, fresh perspectives are just as valuable as like mm-hmm. long perspectives. Um, I feel yeah, like, yeah, because I, I feel like there great. are some movies that there are some movies that I love on retrospect, and there are some movies that I'm like, what the hell? Um, why did I like this so much? Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like those mm-hmm. are both like powerful and important feelings. Yeah, yeah, that uh, should be good. I I think most of these films I saw again close to a month ago because I try and stay a few weeks ahead of the records just as of my schedule like mm-hmm. currently doing the 2000 movies about to watch a little scene indie film called star wars episode one <laughs> <laughs> there's some kind of uh, phantom also i was you know what i was gonna say that's a movie i've also watched for, that i watched for my uh, old podcast but no that's not true i have <laughs> never seen that movie oh wow I've seen the other two prequels, uh, but no, not that one. I've seen the making of uh, Star Wars: The Phantom Menace. You saw, I see. You saw how the sausage got made, and you're like, "Yeah, I don't need to see the sausage." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I saw how the sausage got made, and I was like, "Well, I understand from this that Jar Jar Binks is very funny, and I think I understand what I need to understand about that movie." (laughs) I am. uh... I went on a bit of a Weird Al binger in the gym last night, 
Um, and I realized that I am, I don't think I've sit, sat down and watched the prequels since, um, like they were on VHS. Um, but I am intimately <laughs> familiar with the plot of episode one, just because of the Weird Al song, The Saga Begins, which sure. is just like the plot <laughs> recap of the Phantom Menace to the tune of, um, American Pie. Um, <laughs> uh, which I, me, I absolutely adore. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you, uh, uh, Weird Al Yankovic was on, uh, just last week, the George Lucas talk show. And so we got to talk about that song plenty. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, wow. I definitely want to give that a listen. Yeah. It is, uh, very long and he stuck around for almost the whole four hours. Uh, but it's worth checking out. Wow. Yeah. First Connor Ratliff talks to Tom Hanks, and then he talks to Weird Al Yankovic? Just huge. <laughs> I don't know what those two things have to do with each other. Oh, right. Yeah, George Lucas, of course, hosts the George Lucas talk show. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I am, like, third-hand indoctrinated into the uh, George Lucas talk show canon. Oh wow! Oh, wow, regular Kevin Bacon over here. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a that that's a good way of putting it. It's definitely there's some degrees of separation. <laughs> like how Ben and I are connected to the MTV Movie Award canon by virtue of meeting Young Heath Ledger from Brokeback Mountain at a party once. <laughs> like the actor who played Young Heath Ledger for like ten seconds oh, in that sure. movie. Just... <laughs> It's our it's our little it's our little connection in. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. When I eventually make our okay. big web connecting all the movies, that's how we get into it. Just... <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um yeah. But before we go on, uh Jesse, last time you were here for kissing, I of course asked about your history with kissing, and now that it's a new topic, I gotta ask, what is your experience with villainy or evil in movies or otherwise? Um Wow. That's a an even tougher question than last time. Um, I guess, I guess I'm not sure whether or not I believe in evil as like a concept. As far as my like personal life, I don't think I've ever interacted personally with anyone who I would characterize as a villain. Uh, Certainly taking these five villains as an example, none of them are... And I'll put in a clean edit point for this. Wow, what a good answer. I especially like the ending. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um... Yeah. yeah. So, the 1997 MTV Movie Awards uh, Revisited were, of course, hosted by Mike Myers. Performers mm. included Jewel, Bush, and En Vogue. Um, and then this was the year where they got rid of the most desirable f- female and most desirable male categories. There so. was. Boo! A... We don't like that. We <laughs> love those awards. Not a desirable, yeah. desirable one in the bunch, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Definitely not concerned about how to ever cover those one day. <laughs> I mean, um, this was the year Independence Day won for Best Kiss. Um, yeah. Be- 
beating the step-sibling kiss of a very Brady sequel, and the <laughs> Romeo and Juliet kiss, and Bound. Yeah, just... Oh, and you can't you can't forget phenomenon. Yeah, um, this was the phenomenon <laughs> year. John Travolta just on mm. a on an absolute roll. Um, I don't know if yeah, I don't know if he ever comes up again. But I sent you last night. I found um I found Doll Travolta from Broken Arrow, um like the little like stunt like double doll they had to use when he got hit with a big missile. Um, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, Travolta comes up again next week, actually, for Face Off. Uh, oh, um, right, yeah, doing a dual performance right. with Nicolas Cage. Yeah, the best movie this year was Scream, which was not nominated for Best Villain. Assumedly because they didn't want to give away a twist villain, but, I mean, one of... Well, but they did give away a twist villain in one of these nominations. Yeah, that's the whole thing. I'm like... <laughs> Yeah, I have a bone to pick, like, watching this film, where I'm like, oh, okay, so he's the villain? <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Like, at the end, you're like, oh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I kind of mute, kind of blunted the twist a bit for yeah. one of these films. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. No, um... Yeah. Yeah, I feel like, weirdly enough, that, like, I, I think I know which one you guys are talking about specifically, but, like, I feel like that happens a couple times in this. Um, like, uh, like, I feel like there are a couple that, like, I feel like if you just, like, change, I think one of these, if you just change the ending a little bit, they're not a villain, and then for one of these, like, it's kept vaguely ambiguous till one big event. You, right. You, yeah. You, of course, are talking about a time to kill, you're like, well, Peter <laughs> Sutherland's a villain? <laughs> Maybe he's gonna have his big redemption. <laughs> Yeah, it would only take one different moment in that film for him to redeem himself, I think. <laughs> yeah, he just doesn't have to, like, burn down a house. <laughs> yeah. I actually, so, uh, we should say, two. there are two of these movies that I not only watched three weeks ago, but was also very, very high when I watched, <laughs> and that's... A Time to Kill and Fear. Oh, also two movies I think are quite bad. And so I'm not going to have a ton to say about those movies. And specifically about Kiefer Sutherland, who I barely registered. Yeah, it's movie. it's weird. I feel like this is... it's You know, if I, if I had a nickel for every time um, a courtroom drama movie on this villain list nominated not like the other like the i don't know if it's the plaintiff or the defendant but like didn't nominate the what is clearly supposed to be like the antagonistic force i'd have two nickels which is not a lot but it's weird that it mm. happened twice yeah i can't believe we don't have to talk about kevin spacey a second time out of world just... oh right yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean that was like my question thinking about the um the twist villain was I was like did they nominate Kevin Spacey for the usual suspects the previous year because that's the most similar to the movie that we're going to talk about if it is really not clear until the final moments of the film yeah. who the villain is uh, but no they of course nominated for him yeah. for his other iconic villain performance. I guess, I guess MTV has just taken a stance saying that 
we that they dislike racists more than they dislike lawyers, which is a statement I'm okay with. I guess with. so. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. It's maybe not a statement that the MTV Movies Awards had to make, but there's worse statements <laughs> for them to make, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um. Yeah, trying to see what else happened this year. Chewbacca, of course, was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um. <laughs> I mean, there there was a presenter who was in one of these movies. I don't know if you noticed that. Oh, was it? Or maybe there's are there a couple? There's definitely one. Um, Ellen Barkin. Oh yeah, from the fan presented best new filmmaker to Doug Liman. Uh, yes, apparently running unopposed. And then also, um, best new filmmaker went to I think is it Doug Lemon. Um, we I think we've covered a couple times, or at least um, with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh right, yeah, that's the big one. We've yeah, we've yeah. never covered any of the Bourne yeah. movies, but we've covered Mr. and Mrs. Smith. <laughs> Just he only did the first Bourne movie. Oh right, yeah, I believe because then Green Breath took over. Yeah, so never up and coming. It's always interesting looking at the best new filmmaker category to see, well, see see when it's like, oh yeah, Quint- this Quentin Tarantino or. I don't know if they actually gave it to him. They definitely gave it to Wes Anderson for Bottle Rocket, which it's like, yeah, they they nailed it. Yeah. Also, um, I'm I'm a bit of a film noob. Um, Matthew Broderick is the Ferris Bueller guy, right? Yes. Okay, perfect. Mm -hmm. When watching The Cable Guy, I was like, that's him, right? (laughs) Because like he looks so much older, and I guess because it is, but like he looks older than he should. And he's lady. Um, I mean, something may yeah. have happened to age him oh. in that uh, time. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. At what point does Matthew? Bro- uh, well, yeah, we'll get in into it. But at what point does Matthew Roderick accidentally kill a man? Or oh, Jesus! Yeah. Oh, 1987. So yes, that's correct. It happens well. Well before the cable guy. But that's also the year he made that movie with the monkey, Project X. <laughs> well, well, you know. You win some, you lose some. Um, <laughs> <laughs> terrible way of putting it. Oh, God. Yeah, that is a... Oh, you know. Lord. Oh. I don't think it's the worst thing I've said on this podcast, but it probably comes close. Just, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. But, um... Yeah. Um, yeah. We could probably get right into it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, for Best Villain 1997, the nominees are Robert De Niro in The Fan, Edward Norton, Primal Fear, Kiefer Sutherland in A Time to Kill, Mark Wahlberg, Fear, and the winner, Jim Carrey in The Cable Guy. Mm hmm. That's, that's them. <laughs> I don't know uh, if you're caught up with um, past the Golden Popcorn lore, um, but we have gotten, I would say, exclusively not great-ish Jim Carrey movies. Um, mm-hmm. Depending, yeah. I mean, I we we discussed uh, Bruce Almighty <laughs> yeah. in my previous yeah. episode, uh, which I feel was a lot of me just going, oh, I can't believe we did like Dumb and Dumber, and then also like and Ace Ventura and Ace Ventura Two. Yeah, and... I if if it 
if it weren't for me around that time, uh, my friends and like uh, sitting me down and uh, we watched um, Eternal Spotlight of this or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. I feel like I would have like a perception of like, is Jim Carrey like a good actor or is he just like kind of funny looking? Um, well, this is the <laughs> thing is that I, of course, I, I adore Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, but it does call into question perhaps not is he a good actor, but is he funny? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the thing. Is that like, and is that movie like? Could could it be someone other than Jim Carrey? Like, is he, I feel like he's maybe not even the most important thing about that movie, too. Um, yeah, sure. I think he's. I think he's very yeah. good in it, and it is. It is. I think like somewhat important that they got him to <clears throat> so aggressively play against his persona uh in a way that works for that movie and that he has not really been willing to do since then um sonic 2 isn't out yet so we can't say that quite yet um (laughs) his his big dramatic monologue he might go hard against the persona in sonic oh i would yeah i would love to see that yeah, that's true, because Jim Carrey, he definitely has a type. Like, even in, I think my favorite performance of his is The Truman Show, it is still kind of... Oh, sure. It's like a more muted... He's doing shtick, it's just a bit more muted, kind yes. of. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, these are... When he works with a real director, they make him turn it down. Yeah. Uh, and it usually works. Yeah. But um, I feel like... Yeah, and I feel like a reason for that... Um, is that he just sort of comes across as really annoying, um, which I mm-hmm. think works which, like, for this movie. If we I want, think a little bit. I mean, right? If we want to start talking about the cable guy, it this certainly wants to reckon with that. It like feels like what it is is like uh, it is trying to be an examination of like what would it be like if there was a Jim Carrey character in your life. Yeah. <laughs> um and there's maybe a few reasons why that doesn't completely work for me. Yeah. But I yeah. I, I don't remember the if there's a specific order that you go in. I don't I want to I don't want to potentially break the order of the podcast. <laughs> oh no, we start with I yeah. mean we we start with the winner and like it can just go around to Okay, whatever. we'll start with the winner. Then great. So, I mean this is where we'll say that Kenny, you've been watching my letterbox over the last month, and you've seen me log negative reviews for four of these films. Understandable in all cases, I feel. just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then as I was watching The Cable Guy, I said, well, I'll leave you in suspense about this one. Um, and it's time to break that suspense and say that I also thought that The Cable Guy was quite bad. Uh, so these are five movies that I don't like that we will be discussing. Perfect. Uh, which is my own fault. I looked at this list of movies and thought, I bet there's a couple of winners in here. Yeah. And there weren't. Yeah. You, know you, you were like, at least I get to talk about baseball, I think was in your... I mean, sure, that is that is still the silver lining. And I do have... That is the one interesting thing about the fan is how it... Uh, uh, functions as a post 1994 strike anxiety film 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. See, and I don't even know that context. I'll, I'll say I'm just ha- I'm just happy I've been able to have you on like even twice. As, remember when I started this? I'm like, oh yeah, be nice to get like some of the some of my friends from Can Can I Kick It on? But like, Je- I'm like, oh, I don't mm-hmm. know if Jesse will co- come in. This definitely doesn't seem like her thing. So that I've had you on twice before. We've gotten it like Colin or Andy on once. I think is a like well, really fun and it's yeah. I'm uh, I like doing podcasts. Yeah. Is the secret. Yeah, you know what? Um, I feel like this podcast sometimes gets, you know, uh, a little too positive. I feel like we need to start digging into these, into these MTV well, movies that's a little bit. <laughs> what you're gonna get today, because, yeah, uh, yeah these, uh, in my opinion, range from uh, mediocre to dreadful. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. So. Th- yeah, so the cable guy, directed by Ben Stiller, a star of the mm-hmm. winner of Best Kiss the last time you were on, like the Starsky. That's and right. Uh huh. Yeah. So, bad movie. Yeah, <laughs> bad movie. This is, I think, the second film he makes after Reality Bites. Um, um is it? I think it's the follow-up. Reality Bites is like '94. Yeah. Oh, you're saying it is his? Yeah, it's like his film. second yeah. film directing. Yes, yeah. I believe that's correct. Yeah, he does Reality Bites a few years earlier, and this is his second film, uh, which I guess he follows up like five years later with Zoolander. Yeah. It's funny that Zoolander doesn't come up for best villain at all. <laughs> but Yeah, that would be, that would make sense. <laughs> yeah, considering how much people love Zoolander. <laughs> yeah, as opposed to this movie, which won the award despite the fact that uh, it, it has gained a cult status since is my impression and I don't know why that's happened because the reception when it came out was correct which is that it is bad <laughs> it um, was, I didn't know it existed before this list I when I was going through I definitely thought I was like oh it's Larry the Cable Guy's movie obviously <laughs> nope. No, has nothing to do with him. Um, and this is actually the one movie that I didn't, I didn't necessarily watch. Had I hadn't necessarily seen the Cable Guy before, but I had been in the room while most of the Cable Guy uh, played uh, <clears throat> many years ago, and I can't say in the course of sitting in the room while it was playing that it ever caught my attention. Um, but she had some hope because like, as I said, like this is a movie that has for some reason been reevaluated. So I expected it to be like, Oh, I guess this is going to be like an interesting exploration of the Jim Carrey persona, even though it's really only two years in. And I, I don't, I guess it's trying to be that, but, like, the thing is, like, for it to work is that Matthew Broderick has to work as a straight man, which he just doesn't. He's a fucking weirdo, and no matter what he's doing, you're just like, this guy's fucking weird. What's wrong with this guy? Uh, And then the other problem with this movie is that it just isn't funny. at any point, really. I mean, there's, like, I guess it's a funny idea for them to go to medieval times, but I don't think that anything that happens at medieval times is funny. I think, 
George Siegel and Bob Odenkirk each get like a funny line reading because they are funny people. Uh, but yeah, it's pretty rough. I think that the the sort of background bit of like the the Ben Stiller like twin actor. I, I think mean, that's a good background bit. It would be entertaining <laughs> if it were a diversion from something that was not just consistently annoying. <laughs> because I was consistently annoyed by the rest of the movie when they do a bit about that. I'd just be like okay why are we doing this and then i i did finally remember the like payoff at the end of like oh he falls on the satellite and the light goes the the tv goes out just as the verdict is being delivered and kyle death picks up a book um which i guess maybe was like uh funny commentary in 1996 yeah, it definitely it's definitely like to so ever things that it's like a satire now of a culture that was obsessed with TV is ones where right. maybe it's of its time. I'll I'll say I I do enjoy this film. I think it's yeah. It it is like Jim Carrey. I've I've said before like I said before in most of his villain things, he is essentially just giving the same performance. But the, this mm-hmm. one, is, this one at least is the variation of right. Again, I mean, to whatever degree, that's some, intentional. Like it's, he's throwing some stuff in. I don't really like the stuff that he's throwing in. I think it, you know. I think it is ultimately not great to like throw a speech impediment in as a villain characteristic. Um, but, like, whatever, that's, like, yeah, that seems like a thing that Jim Carrey would do. I mean, this is, like, this is this is not a movie that I think is, like, rancid. I, like, can understand how someone would vibe with this movie and find things about it funny. And, like, I'll certainly admit that I probably cut it less slack because, uh, like, truly less than two minutes in, there's... Again, I don't think it's funny, so I won't call it a joke, but there is a there is like a trans panic bit like two minutes into this movie as Matthew Broderick is flipping through channels and I'm just like, okay, so this is it's nineteen ninety-six. Uh they you know, I I've long said that uh no one figured out how to be funny until the seventies except for uh the three stooges and cartoons and what this movie makes me think is that uh, some people still hadn't figured it out in 1996. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think the benefit uh, of letting myself stew on this one for a little bit longer is that, like, I I remember, I think I had a decent time with this movie. Um, but, yeah, but they're, mm-hmm. like, I think I could probably count on my hand, like, how many movies I dislike. Um, but I think, the, sure. but I think it's really telling that, like, I can't really think of, like, any particular jokes that stand out to me um i also didn't right. take any notes this summer because i think i think it was like i think it was the night before i thought that we were gonna do the podcast so i was just like watching it on my phone <laughs> in my bed um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and like i remember i had like a pretty decent time with it um but i think like a big problem with this is that like it's just not that interesting and it its yeah. climax is like superficially epic 
Um, but it, it's like it's not right. it's built like upon bringing in these like weird horror tropes, especially with the like nightmare sequence, but also with the actual ending that like are not well delivered upon yeah. and don't jive with the rest it, it of the movie. It feels like a movie that like it it need it wasn't. I feel like the I don't think I'm gonna watch it like again. Um, I will like give it props though for like it is. Um, like Jim Carrey is giving the Jim Carrey performance and it works because there are characters that are reacting like the way that like a, a regular person would react and that it's kind of annoying. Um, I think Jack Black does that for pretty successfully yeah. of like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Again, Matthew Broderick, I'm just like, I'm never going to buy Matthew Broderick as a straight guy. Um, or a voice of reason, rather. Um, and, like, admittedly, part of that may be because I look at Matthew Broderick and I'm like, this man has killed. Um, not to be glib about a tragedy, but, like, it is never that far from my mind when watching Matthew Broderick in a movie. And, like, I think Kenneth Lonergan is, like, I don't know if he's doing this intentionally because, like, they are friends, but, like, he is good at using that energy of, like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> um, but, yeah, here it's just, like, he's supposed to be the normal guy who's being tortured by Jim Carrey, and you're just like, no, something's wrong with this, or I, at least, I'm like, something's wrong with this guy, too. Yeah. He's not all right. Uh, Leslie Mann should not be with him either. She was right to want some space uh, and has now been tricked into thinking that she should be with him because uh, he looks so good in comparison to this uh, non-person that Jim Carrey is playing. Yeah, and it's like, um, it's weird. This is like the shortest movie on the list. That's right. These are some long movies. But it it feels like it has, like, it feels like it, I don't like to say wasted my time, but, like, it feels like there are so many <laughs> scenes that aren't, like, interesting enough that this this scene should have been, like, full of set pieces, because it clearly wants to be this very wacky, cartoonish movie. Um, but, like, there are really only two scenes that I feel like capture it. Like, there's, like, the medieval scene that's, like, kind of hit or miss, but he says mm-hmm. Fortnite, so I give it points. Um, <laughs> do you have medieval times in Canada? Um, I don't think we do. No. I'm familiar with it just as a concept on like TV shows. Like, right? I'm... We went to medieval times as a field trip. Oh, in, it's like, like a chain. What? middle school yeah Yeah, there's a bunch of them they're like they're just like in malls but obviously they're like big spaces so not like popular malls we went to a mall that was like 45 minutes away in the middle of nowhere and went to medieval times just like a generic concept I thought this was like nope. It's a like the the crowns, the different colored knights. It's all it's all real. Um, They do make you eat with your hands. (laughs) They do serve Pepsi. (laughs) It's it's a very clearly someone just went to medieval times and was like, "This is weird. We should put this in a movie." I think for me, I think hands down the funniest scene. Um, and I feel like it would. I feel like it would have been heightened. Yeah, if, if like. 
if um if Broderick was played by someone who could pull off a straight man a little better, um, is when like the family's right. doing charades and like everyone's yeah. turned against him pretty much. Um, <laughs> right. This is where I'm like, Bob Odenkirk kind of has a funny line reading towards the end of that when Broderick punches Carrie. And Odenkirk's just like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, yeah, he's, you know, Bob Odenkirk is not, is especially at this point in his career, just like anything he does is probably going to be funny. Um, He uh, just like, you know, that's how he works. And like the other thing that I like kind of got a chuckle out of was um, when uh, uh, Broderick, goes to jail and George Siegel is there as his father and he keeps just saying your mother's worried sick and I'm like yeah he's he's a funny guy um but yeah boy like but like there are like people who are funny who are in this movie not funny like Janine Garofalo can be funny she's not funny in this movie Jack Black is not even being asked to be funny he's just like the secondary voice of reason. Yeah, it's a weird early Jack Black role for him. Where right, like, it's a weird early Jack Black, and it's just like he's kind of a pill, but he's right to be a pill. Also, the second Jack Black we've covered after the holiday. <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and also a weird early Owen Wilson, where like he has a really gross looking goatee and i'm just like hollywood had not figured out what to do with owen wilson yet um this is i guess the year after uh the mtv movie awards recognized bottle rocket uh but yeah i'm just like no this is not working uh it's just like what if a guy was a bad date but not like comically bad just bad <laughs> yeah um also like i want to say does he like during like the final scene is he like referencing a bunch of shows or did i just make that up in my head um which like, the, where, like, like the... when he's giving his like rant on the satellite yeah. dish or <laughs> oh yeah he like names a bunch of yeah. tv characters he's like i'm the bastard son of claire huxtable yeah that's him Naming a bunch of television yeah. characters. Um, Wasn't Huxtable the Cosby family? <laughs> yep, yep, that's right. Um, yeah, that's what he's saying in that scene. I am the bastard son of Claire Huxtable. Um, which, yeah, none of none of the television programs that he mentioned are programs that I have any connection to. Yeah. Um, but I don't. Yeah, there's. He's not really. He's just like naming TV characters. It's not really to any particular end. Yeah, um, it's like I. It's like I guess supposed to be like part of his character, but like a lot of times he's just he's just right. crazy wacky guy with no theme. Right. At I all. mean, I guess I can't talk because I did uh, participate in an improv show last night where. One of the jokes of one of the scenes was just, this character is naming a bunch of old television characters. So, I guess it 
is an attractive thing to do as a comedic bit. I don't... I, th- I think there is... I think it worked okay in that improv show. Yeah. I don't think it works there's, in this movie. It's just like... Yeah. I don't know if it's like a comedy thing or if it's like a... Isn't it so sad that this guy is so invested in television because he was uh, neglected by his mother? I'm just like... I. It's never clear to me what this movie wants to be if it's just like a wacky satire or if it's at some points like trying trying to draw out some sort of yeah and like there's like a really good example of that kind of joke um uh i I watched on youtube um like a month ago um what is it called it's like it's star kids they do like a little like uh musical performances and they had one called i think yeah yeah which is like wicked and like aladdin and <laughs> yes, I've, I actually was just talking about this with our friend Evie yeah. today. Um, um, and then, like, yeah, that and track. then like, the genie character in that just makes a bunch of references that nobody gets. Um, or, like, yeah. but everyone. Yeah, and, that's, I guess that's like a popular. Yeah. That's a popular conceit yeah. for yeah. Uh, the whole su- a character yeah. is just like making weird references that are not appropriate or meant to be understood by the audience yeah i don't think that's quite what's understood no. what's happening here just because like i think these are characters that are like largely forgotten today but i think in 1996 would be like these are the iconic characters like of the childhoods of the target audience for this movie um who would be like the same age as the Jim Carrey mm-hmm. character, I guess. Yeah. The whole setup for that twisted bit, though, is like for the, the whole thing, they're like, yeah, this genie, he's really funny. But it's like, then he oh, gets sure. the one scene sure. and it's him making references and everyone going, what are you talking about? <laughs> Just... Yeah, that's funny. That's yeah. pretty good. That's a good, that's a good way to do yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's a good spin on it. Um, yeah, th- this film is interesting because uh, when Jack was on a few weeks ago, ago he had men- mentioned something that this is kind of the end of like, oh, or mostly the end of sort of a trend of movies we've been covering for best villain of it's kind of the comedic version of the kind of a mysterious like a, a stranger just invades someone's life like kind of right the blink from hell is like what i i think someone called this a parody of that or a satire on that on letterboxd i don't recall who but yeah this is just the cable guy from hell and it's a a, a satire of that idea. Yeah, you're kind of unlawful entry, hand that rocks the cradle, single white female type films. Um, right. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Which is like, it's so weird because I feel like with like one minor tweak at like the end, this could have just been like a wholesome movie. Um, because like he's a bit abrasive, but like he's not like he's not like malicious. He doesn't like kill a dog I mean, or anything. He... I guess he that's true he never he never kills that is I guess what sets it apart from some of these other types of movies he does send Matthew Broderick to prison um and also uh hires a sex worker to seduce him without telling him but he does it with good intentions at least um I don't I, I, I guess mean, he does use that to blackmail him later. I don't know if we can... I think it's hard to talk about the intentions of uh, 
<laughs> Chip Douglas, or, you know, we never know, of the cable guy whose name we never find out, just because he is not constructed as a person. He's just, like, a bit for Jim Carrey to do. Yeah. So, like, does he have good intentions? I don't know. I don't certainly don't think that came into Jim Carrey's mind of, like, what are the motivations of, you know, maybe it did. Maybe I'm not giving it enough credit. Um, but it doesn't feel like a motivated character. It just feels like a set of ticks and isn't this weird and yeah, fucked up. I guess, um, I guess I feel like, yeah, I feel like this movie could have just easily have been like a a sort of I love you man-esque like two people originally they're kind of maybe they're a little annoyed at each other they don't super get along sure. and then by the end sure. like, they're good friends I feel like this like so easily they could have flicked on that switch like right in the last third which I think like sets apart from like a lot of the sure, other villains. yes before yeah. like he goes to jail and yeah I can see yeah. that that was apparently supposed to be the original version just like looking at looking at the wikipedia thing where the original draft was like just kind of just supposed to be a what about bob annoying friend movie where the cable guy's just a likable loser who's like intruding but he's never never physically threatens him at any sure. point and then jim carrey ben stiller and producer judd apatow like the oh the idea of a smart someone who's like really smart just invading your life and often to just make it darker and make it a thriller satire and kind of switch it to fit carry more so yeah or yeah. that's interesting i mean it makes sense that this was ultimately like kind of a stiller apatow carry project because like i i like half looked up the guy who is the sole credited screenwriter on this movie and he has no other screenwriting credits and i think he was just like a lawyer who decided to write a screenplay is what my half of a Google turned up. And he didn't write Primal Fear or A Time to Kill. Just... No, neither of those movies. Uh, yeah, I guess those would make more sense to be written by lawyers. But no, the lawyer wrote this. Yeah, but it makes sense that Apatow probably had a good hand in like the writing of it. And, like, a... Right, probably. That's the, yeah, I would imagine that like some combination of those three people probably particularly apatow um uh did significant rewrites on it uh, i did find out i was like is this did did i was like did judd apatow and leslie mann meet on this movie or were they already married and he was already nepotism casting at this stage in his career and the answer is somewhere in between which is that they met when she was auditioning and he was like the reader standing in for Jim Carrey I think and so I guess when she auditioned they weren't together but I'm not clear it's not clear to me at what point they started dating like by the time she was hired Maybe it was a nepotism hire, um, which, like, I shouldn't impugn Leslie Mann. I think she's a perfectly good actor. Um, you know, it's maybe more the kids who are, like, really 
posting by on being John Apatow's children. Um, but Mon Apatow is good. Like, it's in Euphoria, a show that I admit is like probably not a good show. I feel she's like one easily one of the best parts of it. But I mean, certain I have I basically the only thing I know about that show is that uh, Maude Apatow's character uh, writes a play about how much she hates her sister, and I'm like, sure, yeah, that's a a funny thing to be a part of that show. There's the uh, uh, if I, uh, I, I can recommend the uh, Fran magazine where there was uh, a piece uh, that was actually a dialogue between uh, Fran Hoffner and Vikram Muthri, I believe, uh, about uh, Maude Apatow's play. Um, just the play as its own piece of art, not about euphoria. Yeah. I think... I think they only watched the play. The play is like an um, insane so thing. That's a fun piece. Yeah, the play is an insane thing, especially because you're like, oh, so this high school play seems to have a budget of a million dollars. Like it's right. That <laughs> yeah. The, these are the things that are covered in Fran Magazine, which I think you can find at franmagazine.substack.com. Uh, but the, the, this particular, I believe, was one of the three. Uh, articles well but but that is but that is interesting that they like met on the that they met on like like the cable guy guy set like at the very least in the audition process there right yeah Yeah. it kind of i think winds up being similar to like annette benning and benning and warren Beatty meeting during like bugsy or Mm, sure yeah the iconic couples of Hollywood, uh, Warren Beatty and Annette Benning, Judd Apatow and Leslie Mann. Yeah, the big two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So do we got anything else what to say? What if the four of them teamed up? Ah, uh, what fun that would be. That would be like Andy Jermuga's favorite movie? Just <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. I think we'd all like to see what would come of that. I don't think that those two sets of people would uh, jibe especially well. I bet Annette Bening and Leslie Mann could be like good buddy comedy leads or something. Just Sure, I mean like I think that like the power couple would, the Hollywood power couple would potentially be like fertile ground for Apatow to cover. I don't think he could convince Warren Beatty to get involved, but who knows? Yeah. So do we have anything else to say on the cable guy other than this great idea for like a power couple movie now? (laughs) Yeah, I am going to pitch this to Judd Apatow, um, see if he'll Give me a couple hundred bucks for it. Um, no, I think that's all. I'm trying to think. I think I covered everything I wanted to say about this movie. And again, I'm going to have progressively less to say about the other movies, which I've all seen a longer period of time ago, at least than this, uh, which I, uh, you know, I guess we've now got over an hour between when I finished it and now. Yeah. How about you, Ben? Anything else to say on the cable guy? Uh, or? Um, no, it's, um, it's, it's really strange. Cause like, I, I, 
I often like, I feel like a lot of people, or I guess some people have ways of like viewing movies. I'm very much like, how does it make me feel? Um, rather than like a lot of other things. Um, cause I remember feeling really like pretty good about watching this movie and like, like finding a few of the parts like really enjoyable. Um, but like, as I walk away with it, I don't know if I've walked away with much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like, I think there's like value to that, that like, I feel like, um, like I'm glad I enjoyed it for what it was, but I don't know if I would like, I feel like you're not going to get much out of this movie that you wouldn't get better of out of like a lot of other movies. Um, yeah. I guess the only thing is that like, Hey, like if you, if you, um, if you're in this weird Venn diagram where you acknowledge that a lot of Jim Carrey performances are annoying, but the thing that bugs you about that is that no one in universe wants to acknowledge it <laughs> yeah. this might be the movie for you yeah yeah in a way <laughs> yeah i think i'm sure that like people who are i can see why people who are into carry both would have been turned off by this at the time but also in retrospect are like oh it's like doing something interesting here um yeah but yeah i don't know ultimately i'll say i guess my, my last thing in is and the idea of a person who's like kind of no has a reputation for being kind of annoying in a role that makes him kind of annoying does kind of remind me of last of last year's Ryan Reynolds film Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, in which it cracks that the key to that film and that franchise is that Ryan Reynolds' character is just a dork and no one should like him and he should just get beat up a lot. It's um, a more <laughs> successful version of that idea, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah. We still haven't cracked what what makes the rock tick, but we'll figure it out. I mean, we uh, certain films, <laughs> certain filmmakers may have cracked what makes the rock tick uh, many Putting years ago. In the jungle, and then the rock was, I think, uh, <laughs> afraid of what that might mean about him, and has turned away from doing anything that investigates what makes the rock tick. Though admittedly he spoke somewhat fondly of Southland Tales uh in the last year or so. I think Pain and Gain, I don't I don't know if I've heard the postmortem from him on that, but it seems unlikely that we're gonna get anything like those two performances uh soon or perhaps ever from him. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, so now so yeah, yeah so now with with that I think we can move on to the fan. Great, this is the movie yeah. that I've seen second most recently. <laughs> Are you intentionally yeah. going backwards by when I watch them, Kenny? <laughs> uh it I uh, know it's it's just how it's listed on the Wikipedia article for best villain typically. Uh, sure, sure. Um it, yeah, I might have accidentally watched them in backwards of that order. Yeah, because um, then it's primal fear, then a time to kill, then fear. So yeah, it's... ooh, so close. I that's really close. It, fear and a time to kill are switched, but we are gonna do the two that I don't remember at the end. So great. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Kenny, I think I remember you. Are you you are a fan of the fan? Correct? Yes. Yeah. So the yeah the yeah. fan is directed by Tony Scott, one of my favorite directors. We've covered right. True Romance yeah. on this before, and yeah, sure. Is that I assume a, a kiss thing and not a villain thing? Yeah, True Romance was for the kiss, and 
Yeah, which is the only other Tony Scott movie that I've seen, and not in a very long time, because the reason I watched it was just when I was going through uh, Tarantino's movies. I was just like, oh, well, he wrote this one, and people seem to like it. And uh, I think I think I was just like, yeah, it's pretty good, too. Um, and yeah, part, part of the uh the thing of choosing this year was like oh kenny loves tony scott i'll get to talk tony scott with kenny and then unfortunately he did not like the fan did not really work for me um one of the better movies of this bunch i think maybe even the best yeah so the fan i uh, i can tee up so a few years before tony scott makes this he makes the last boy scout which i think is the only other film that's got an mtv movie awards attention that he was like in- involved with the last boy scout of course is him doing a kind of a shane black script and it's about right. sort of bruce willis teaming up with damon wayans who is like a professional football player and it's like a buddy comedy and it has stuff going on but basically when i watched that at the time this, the stuff that I thought Tony Scott seemed to be most interested in was there was kind of a running thread of kind of how bad sports fan culture is, how oh, kind sure. of betting, how pro, how professional football is, and the health of the players has kind of been compromised by a betting system that basically now, like, if they're, like, screwing up, they're, like, getting tracked, and how that puts pressure. Oh, I mean, that, that's interesting, because that is uh, much like some of the stuff that the fan is dealing with i think even more relevant today as uh the legalization of sports betting is profligating throughout the united states and i think uh yeah there's like all sorts of uh questions about like what sorts of incentives is that placing not in a way necessarily even of like pete rose style the players betting on games but just of like and yeah, this is, I think, a, a thing that has been an issue in general uh, with the, like, recent labor dispute uh, in the MLB is, like, people talking about, like, what is the sort of ways in which we're incentivizing winning, potentially hurting these players. <clears throat> and yeah, continue with your lead up of the fan, because I think what we're heading to is that I'm going to have to talk about the thing that i actually find interesting to talk about yeah first but finish teeing it up I guess. yeah so the so the last boy scout for all for all as much as you know it's a quip heavy movie and all this stuff this of that or the sub i always kind of find, find most compelling and it, it's also filmed that similar to how the fan opens with just like a poem about baseball and images of baseball right. yeah. yeah the last boy scout opens with the like are you ready for football theme and just all this football stuff, followed by a scene in which a football player gets basically uh, a phone call saying, you better deliver, then runs out onto the field with, like, a gun, basically shoots the players to get on the, to the touchdown, and then, like, shoots himself, and it's, it's like this really dark thing that the film doesn't really follow yeah, up wild. on, but, like, it's, mm-hmm. I, I feel bad that I kind of spoiled it to, to Ben just now, because, like, it is just, like, a, <laughs> it's just electric opening, and I'm like, oh, and then I watched the film, I'm like, yeah, this is good, but I kind of wish that Tony Scott just made a movie that was more about the sports culture stuff, because that seems to be what he's interested in. And cut to the fan, where I'm like, hey! Yeah, yeah. he did it. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> I can just say that what I find specifically interesting about this movie, which I referenced, is that uh, listeners may know that they're 
was recently a Major League Baseball uh, labor dispute that was settled uh, early March, I guess, and that we are going to get a full season. It's just going to start a little bit late. Um, and the that labor dispute that just happened was the most contentious labor dispute since the labor dispute of 1994 to 1995, which resulted in the cancellation of the second half of the 1994 season uh, due to a player's strike. And so it's very interesting for me to look at in terms of that, because the arguments that De Niro's character, who of course is the MTV Movie Award nominated villain of this film, line up with the arguments that people were making that like the general public was kind of making at the time of like, oh, these are millionaires playing a child's game. They should be thrilled to be playing this game. And it's only really during this, this I think part of the reason why this labor dispute was the the most hostile since then is that the players had a little bit of momentum because like now is like the first time that I think public opinion is starting to turn on that a little bit of like, okay, it is great that they get to play this game as a job, but also like they are a labor force and, uh, you know, ultimately it's like millionaires versus billionaires. But to see that sort of popular sentiment at the time channeled into this villain in the very soon after that uh, labor dispute, it's just very interesting of like, are they intentionally like making like a pro player labor movie? Or is the idea that maybe because this was the popular sentiment at the time, people would have actually sympathized a little bit more with De Niro's character, and perhaps in that case, he would feel a little less like, oh, this guy is just... I mean, obviously, it's the same thing as the cable guy. The cable guy is the cable guy from hell. This is the fan from hell. Obviously, this guy is... <laughs> uh, something's wrong with him but like i do wonder if like audiences at the time would have been like i see where this guy's coming from this wesley snipes character is kind of spoiled he might need a lesson taught to him um which is like i don't know i don't know if that's like i i i don't know the political yeah. leanings of <laughs> tony scott or of whoever wrote this movie um but yeah, it's, uh, that is the that is what is interesting to me about this movie. What is not interesting to me is uh, any of the ridiculous plot. <laughs> yeah, oh, well, that's a good. Yeah, no, that, that's a good like because I do not know anything about baseball and had no idea that this sure. was following a strike. So it's interesting to get all that context. Uh yeah, Ben, what did you think about? I I, remember, I think this is like a pretty neato movie mm -hmm. um i i think i kind of want to hit on what you were talking about earlier about like oh should we like sympathize with uh, robert de niro maybe he needs to get taught a lesson like it's weird because like the the main like the actual like i think 
one of the defining turning points of like De Niro's um I sort sort of like threat level is when Wesley Snipe just says like I just stopped caring. Right. Yeah. Um which is weird because what Wesley Snipes' character is talking about is so v- vastly different than what Robert De Niro takes from it. Because Robert De Niro's character is like taking that as like, oh, so like you don't care about anything. You're completely nihilistic. Or I mean, I think even he's just taking it as like, oh, you don't care about you offense. don't care about yeah. this game that I hold sacred yeah. that I was never allowed to play. Because, I killed this guy yeah. for you, and you don't thank me for it. Just. <laughs> sure yeah. yeah whereas like wesley snipes is clearly like expressing like um like oh you just shouldn't let things like that bother you right yeah um, which is yeah like a good lesson for a pro yeah. sports player it's a good thing. yeah which like yeah like if there was any lesson to be taught for i don't even think wesley snipes like really needs to be like i think taught a lesson like he's a little bit like maybe pompous in the beginning but like, Seems like yeah. he does like it seems like he come that character comes to a pretty good realization pretty early on in the film of like oh yeah i'm like playing a game like i should treat it like that and i'll it'll be easier to have success and then de niro is horrified that that is the lesson that he's learned from what he's done i mean another it's interesting to compare this movie to the cable guy because like Wesley Snipes is not (laughs) someone who I think of as like being like a good voice of reason actor like he's a pretty big actor you know I love him in like Jungle Fever but like he's doing a lot in that movie but like I think in this movie even though he's like playing a pro athlete and gets to have some of that like bombast once it gets to just like De Niro's character uh trying to execute this insane plot i think that like snipes does a really good job of like how would you react if just like this insane guy had your son and had this insane thing he wanted you to do of like keeping a this like pageant that he wants you to perform so that he won't kill your son um that's i i think the snipes performance is quite successful in like doing both the sort of bombastic athlete thing and becoming more grounded when like De Niro goes off the deep end and someone needs to ground the movie yeah yeah he, he I think yeah, I think he works like really good as sort of like yeah like sort of the the grounding of yeah. this movie because everything around Robert De Niro's life is like really hectic um, like his relationship with his son, <laughs> right? Job. Like, as like a, as like a traveling knife salesman. He's truly the worst father ever. <laughs> yeah, there's. I'll say. I remember watching this, like, because there is a point, like, fairly early into the film, where he abandons his son at a baseball game yeah. to like go to like a sales mm-hmm. call to, for yeah, someone who ultimately it, like, turned out to be at like, the baseball game. Right. He acts like he's like, I'm just gonna go for a little bit, I'm gonna take a phone call. No, he fully leaves the stadium, drives to this guy's office, and he's probably gone, it seems like he's gone for like an hour, at least. It's like, of course the kid freaked out and the old lady had to 
get him back home. What the fuck did he think was going to happen? Yeah, but it's interesting because then, like, he loses custody. I'm like, oh, so the rest of the thing is going to be him obsessing about this. But it's like, no, no, he just kind of moves nope, on. And he doesn't really care. He goes to yeah. one practice yeah. <laughs> and then is told to leave. And he kind of just does leave. And it's like, all right, I guess I'm not a part of my kid's life anymore. After, like, seemingly fighting to be a part of his kid's life. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, I don't know. I guess maybe that's the one thing that we learn about his character is that he may be insane, but he, after being prodded once, will respect a restraining order. Yeah, I mean... Uh, another thing that we learn about this movie's worldview is this movie seems to think that there's nothing that a kid loves more than playing with a knight. There's two children in this movie. And both of them, I would say, one of their <laughs> defining characteristics is they love playing with knives. I mean, it's like that Simpsons episode. It's just they're fascinating. It's like, oh, cool, a knife. Just yeah, I guess everyone's having nice. fun with knives except me. Just <laughs> as someone who um, uh, was begged their parents to get them like a souvenir <laughs> Swiss Army knife in Banff. And then proceeded to, like, cut myself a little bit on the finger by accident, <laughs> like, immediately. Um, kids do love I guess knives so. that are super I guess cool. So. I, uh, <laughs> I guess I was a different uh, genre of child. I was uh, a little intimidated by knives. Another just, like, weird bit of ephemera about this movie is that, and I, I part of the reason I thought of this is because w another weird thing is that, like, the movie keeps saying, like, he's got this $40 million contract, but it refuses to say how many years the contract is for. So it's never clear, like, how, like, there's this idea that it, like, he's maybe, like, overpaid, especially when he's struggling early on in the movie. But, like, just to, like, get some context, I did just look up, like, what, what was the highest paid player? in 1996 and it was Cecil Fielder who made like he I think made like nine and a half million dollars so like he is make it you know a, I, I think there were not like the types of like super long mega deals that we get now I'd imagine it probably wasn't much more of like four or five more than like four or five years that uh Snipes's character is supposed to be under contract for which means that he is definitely one of the highest paid players in the league so like that makes sense he's supposed to be like this is the guy but then the other funny thing is that the second highest played player who made i think about eight and a half million is a player who is referenced in this film barry bonds uh one of the best players of all time now disgraced uh because of uh his steroid usage um fairly or unfairly considering how some of the people uh in the league facilitated that or at the very least turned a blind eye to that steroid usage uh in order to sort of recover from that strike but Barry Bonds do you two want to know uh, what what exactly Barry Bonds was doing in 1996? He was the San Francisco Giants left fielder. 
So in this movie, he does exist. And he's on the I guess team. He's just on a different team. Wow. And there is there's one real baseball player who's in this movie, and it's John Cruck. And he's not playing himself. He has like a character name. I forget what it is. He has one line in the movie. He's the guy who like in the locker room after um um after De Niro has killed Benicio del Toro's character and they put the number eleven patch on the uniform. Which like also as an aside, it is insane to think about like what it would actually look like if one of the players was murdered in the middle of a major league baseball season. I'm like, it feels to me like they might take a bit of time off. Though I guess it's not clear how much time passes. But anyway, John Cruck is the guy who, like, uh, he he says to Wesley Snipes' character, like, oh, well, now we all get to wear it. And then the one other notable thing that John Cruck does is, I believe, during the climax of the movie, he is stabbed to death by <laughs> Robert De Niro's character. And you, you, like, see, I believe it's him, you see him, like, crumpled on the ground, having been stabbed to death. So that is real MLB player John Crux's role in this movie, is to have one line, mostly exist as, like, set dressing, like, you, de- they definitely, like, cut to him hitting or running the bases a few times, and then getting stabbed to death. Uh, so probably a, probably a fun story for John Cruck, um, who, I don't know if he's still an announcer. Um, he definitely was for a while. He had a, a successful media career after this film as well. Wow, uh, no, that, that's great. Like, I so I, I wasn't sure who you were talking about until you mentioned that. Now we all got to wear it. I'm like, oh yeah, him. Yeah, um, yeah, he's that guy. Yep. Yeah. I wonder if in the universe of the fan, if Barry Bond plays on a different team and also never had like his big fall from grace. Just, I mean, maybe he probably in real life. I I I don't know if the timeline has been established. I would guess he had started taking per- performance enhancing drugs. I mean, he only ever played for two teams. He uh, played for the Giants for most of his career, but spent his first maybe like five to ten years with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So, like, maybe in this universe he never left the Pirates is the best guess. And so maybe if he stayed in that small market, then he he stayed the same... uh, small market guy who uh i mean he like he is the guy who like is the poster child for peds partially because like he as a pirate was very much like a kind of all-around player like he hit home runs but he also like stole a bunch of bases and was a good defender he, he actually played center field part of the time for the pirates and by the time he's most of his time with the giants he's just like has an enormous head and enormous arms and just hits an insane number of home runs and then also walks an insane amount because people are afraid to pitch to him. Well, uh, but yeah. 
This is the I think this is the most I've ever learned about baseball. Other than like the well, basic rules of the that's game. That's what I'm here for. That that <laughs> means that means that ultimately, even if I didn't like any of these movies, I was right to pick this year. Yeah. <laughs> Davis, all of our baseball mm-hmm. knowledge. It's it's strange that you were uh, that you you came in this episode a cable expert, but it's, have given us infinitely more info on uh, mm-hmm. on, on baseball. Yeah, I guess that's maybe. I guess I just don't see my <laughs> I, I I don't self identify yeah. didn't self identify as a a baseball expert because I I'm aware of so many people who know so much more about baseball than me. But yes, I suppose in the context of this podcast i am indeed a baseball expert yeah yeah i mean yeah compared to like me who like just doesn't know nothing and ben who played football sure yeah the opposite yeah. of baseball. yeah sure when we get to the last boy scout ben will just have all the in- insights in on like what was going on with football in the 90s but um i know i don't know if funny helmets were still around then but that's where my extent of my football knowledge goes <laughs> You've got me beat. Um, but yeah, th- this is a film that uh, I'll say to an extent that I think it's a bit maybe more successful in its satire than one of the cable guys trying to do is like mm-hmm. as, as insane as like the mur- the the like murder of like Benicio del Toro is into the like wait they would just continue on with the season. It is I I, I I'll say I do enjoy the bit where like initially everyone's, like, suspicious of Wesley Snipes, and you assume the thing is gonna go, oh, he's gonna get framed and arrested for all this, but then once he starts, like, winning games again, then everyone's like, yeah! Mm -hmm. Wesley Snipes! Right, yeah. Like, that did feel, like, true to life, where it's like, oh, right, sometimes as long as you're winning, you're able to overlook, wait, did he kill a guy? Like... Right, yeah. Yeah, I think there's some (laughs) successful stuff in this movie that I guess the issue for me is that I just feel like it is frequently ridiculous without ever being, like, fun. Like, it is, there are ridiculous things happening, and yet it's still, like, frequently pretty boring to me. Yeah. I'll say like there's long stretches. I mean, like, the end is, like, there's a lot going on. But, like, most of the movie, I'm just, like, I don't care about all this stuff that's happening. And then, like, every once in a while, De Niro will do something insane. Um, Yeah, so you kind of wish there were more scenes, like, when he kills the cockroach with the Yeah, and there's the, right, and there's the fucking, the Hasidic Jewish man walking by with a chihuahua. Yeah, exactly. Or when he's the umpire at the end. I mean, yeah, that's great. (laughs) Such a good reveal. (laughs) Where's De Niro God? And then then the umpire's yelling at Snipes, and this is the climax of the movie. And the the umpire calls Snipes out, and Snipes doesn't think he's out. He thinks he's hidden inside the park home run. And the umpire's like, you're arguing with me? You think you can argue with me? And Snipes is like, it's him! That's that's the guy! (laughs) De Niro has somehow usurped the umpire. Yeah, I mean, there is is some stuff like that where I'm like, this is like cooking with some kind of juice. Uh, But yeah, like, I think especially, like, the middle of the movie, I just, like, really checked out for a lot of it. Yeah. Um, I think that's reasonable. This is a film, 
I I'd have to check my timeline. I I think it's like one of the last Tony Scotts I saw where it's I had seen a lot of his mm-hmm. back half first and then I kind of watched with the fir- first first half and then so but so by this point I'm like pretty keyed into like what he's doing like all all sure. his editing editing tricks and sort of yeah and and sort of kind of getting into that so I have appreciation on it as this is him like you know kind of entering the second half of his career where he begins where he begins to get a bit more experimental with like his edits and his right and I guess like some of that stuff did just kind of feel like a little bit too much to me like when when De Niro's character kills uh Del Toro's character and there's like this red filter as Del Toro is bleeding out. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I don't know. Um and yeah, it's just like the like song choices are very funny and that it's pretty strictly alternating between the Rolling Stones and Nine Inch Nail. <laughs> um and it's like it's all exactly the Rolling Stones songs that you think it is. Um, yeah, De Niro has this weird bit where he keeps, he'll be listening to a Rolling Stones song, and he'll be like, oh, I remember when Mick was recording this song. Uh, and then it, he's, once when he's kidnapped, um, Snipes' kid and has him in the car, he tries to pull that, and the kid is just like, who's Mick? And he's just like, uh, uh, a friend of mine. Yeah, he. I don't know if I. I don't know if De Niro works for me in this movie either. It's a very strange De Niro performance in that, like, he seems very old by this point, and like, I don't know how old this character is supposed to be. Like, he has a young son, and like, the stepfather is. Um, Chris Mulkey from Twin Peaks, who I would imagine is substantially younger than Robert De Niro. It's just like it's a weird like it, it it I mean maybe similar to what it is for Scott. It feels like a sort of transitional era for De Niro, maybe, where it's like he hasn't I don't know if he's like totally embraced being an old guy yet at this point and like that old like what is he like 55 or something in this movie yeah he i would imagine yeah he's uh, 53 three i think when he filmed yeah, it yeah so he seems older um i don't know why yeah i don't know i guess it's just like it's just like he's like his character is just like such uh kind of like fuck up like you've got this stuff about like he that is only come back to in that like knives being a motif and like pretty early on in the movie he's fired from his job as a knife salesman at the company that his father like sort of co-founded but like there's this implication that like your father didn't really co-found this company. He was just a guy who was good at making knives, and the other guy was the guy with the real vision. And it's like, okay, I don't know what this weird family drama has to do with anything. (laughs) Knife commentary. Right, there's like a bunch (laughs) of stuff about how like 
the reason that he has become bad at his job is that they're selling bad knives. And his boss keeps being like, no, you don't get it. People want to buy shitty cheap knives and then we'll be there when their shitty cheap knives break. And they want more shitty cheap knives. And Daniel's like, no, I've got to be selling good knives. It's just like, okay. I mean, it's just like this guy is just like, it's another way in which it's like similar to the cable guy is like this is not like a a a sketched out character it's just like this fucking freak um and you know i guess he's doing an okay job at that yeah what do you think of de niro in this ben um i think he was doing pretty good um i think he does sell like very disturbingly deranged very yeah, well like sort of like a very um sort of very similar to cape fear in that it's like even in like very calm moments it's very tense um especially like when he's like when he's both with his like son and also with like uh, wesley snipes kidnapped son <laughs> it's just always like very stressful right um, yeah you're like it's always like it's clear that uh a judge would never give him even partial custody because you can see within 30 seconds of seeing this guy with a child that he should never be around children. And like, yeah, I guess that is like the De Niro thing of just like this fucked up freak of like Taxi Driver, like the King of Comedy, which I haven't seen, but I think is maybe even the clearer lineage to this role uh but yeah it just feels like this character is not like as sketched out as like a, a travis bickle or uh as i would imagine that rupert pupkin is in the king of comedy yeah i actually did watching a comedy a last time after i had watched this film because i'm like oh how similar like is this just king of comedy with baseball sure. and he is giving a mm-hmm. definitely kind of a different performance in king of comedy like sort of it right still like kind of weird loser but like different flavor of loser in it and sure yeah that makes sense yeah, it really is like he is such a loser in this movie. Yeah, he's get, getting into fights just be, bad with the knives. It's yeah, I'll, I'll say yeah. I enjoy him in this. Of the this is I think the third he's snipes. Bad. Yeah, I think this is the third snipes we've covered for best villain and the third De Niro we've covered. And I'll say wow. he's probably a bit better in Cape Fear than this, but I might enjoy this more than Casino like his performance more than his mm. casino performance just because his casino performance is like yeah i get it like it's <laughs> yeah whereas this at least it's just like kind of nervy and weird the whole time it's um yeah yeah, yeah. he is uh mm-hmm. i mean yeah he's not is he's certainly not like phoning this in it's yeah. just like i don't know if i really get what it, it, he's doing here <laughs> Yeah, and this is definitely a more grounded Snipes performance after New Jack City and Demolition Man. <laughs> I can't say I. What have I seen? It. I mean, I guess I've seen <laughs> I've seen Jungle Fever, which he's great in, and then I guess I've seen a couple of the like late career resurgent roles. Um, the first of those is Chirac, and then Dolomite uh, is my name. Both of those being like pretty big performances and like yeah i think of him as like a guy who goes big and as a result was like 
surprised by how good he is at being the sort of grounding force of at least the climax of this movie. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. It's I mean, he's like doing solid emotional work in Jungle Fever too. I think. Yeah, I I got just seen... like he yeah. he is uh, complicit in the insane final shot of that movie. I yeah. guess I have not seen Jungle Fever, but definitely I'll say between all these best villain ones we've been doing, which I think after this we still got to get to Blade yet, and then in yeah, yeah this is yeah his first appearance is like a non. Um, villain, uh-huh. um, but not his last. Yeah, that's right. It, it is kind of shaping up to be almost sort of the Woody Harrelson, where he's like surprisingly dominant in the '90s of just popping up and stuff. Him and him and Sandra Bullock, who we're also going to get to pretty soon. I mean, they, uh, they, uh, not Sandra Bullock, but uh, Woody Harrelson and uh, Wesley Snipes were in uh, White Men Can't Jump together. Yeah. One of both of their uh, most iconic performances, I think. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, where they have surprisingly good, like, just buddy chemistry, where you're like, oh, um, yeah. But if we're done with the fan, yeah. um, yeah. But uh, before we move on, um, <laughs> this is not even. I might even edit this out. This is just a joke for me. <laughs> uh, but if you want to draw your attention to not words, um, I have an important Venn diagram. Jesus, um, <laughs> I haven't looked at it yet. I'm just. <laughs> Great. So what has happened here is we've got a Venn diagram that kind of is like a map of what the rest of this episode is going to be. And on the left, we have courtroom drama. And on the right, we have has fear in the name. So solidly in that right section is a time to kill. Uh, Solidly, or sorry, in the left section, in the left circle is a time to kill the courtroom drama circle. In the right circle, the has fear in the name circle, we have fear. Uh, and then in the middle of that Venn diagram, we've got primal fear, which is our next movie. So yeah. what a wonderful transition. Well, no, well, now we have to leave it in, although Jesse's explained it so wonderfully. Yeah. It's just I, 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 yeah. clinically explaining You're the welcome. joke. Um, I, I I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, a, this is a visual thing that uh we have been let in on and i want to make sure that the listeners are also let in on on the experience that we're having while recording this podcast yeah yeah i i will i will probably tweet this with um with the uh with the actual like tweet when this episode comes out or i'll tweet the clip and quit cable guy when he says Fortnite. i haven't decided yet Mm. um yeah but yeah. So Primal um, Fear, uh, Edward Norton's first movie? Like, that's right. Oh, yeah. Really? Do you know the me and Edward Norton thing? I don't. What's the you no, and Edward? So this is, this is not that interesting. Um, but Edward Norton uh, grew up in Columbia, Maryland, uh, which is where... Uh, my grandparents still live, so a place I've been plenty, but also where my mother grew up, uh, and they're of similar ages and went to the same high school, and my uncle actually was in the same grade as him, and I'm told that they were not, like, great friends, but, like, were friendly. Uh, so I do have... 
the mildest of connections to Edward Norton. Wow. Uh, of course, nominated for the MTV Movie Award and the only one of these uh, five performances also nominated for an Oscar. Is that like a similar hit rate where it's like, usually it's like one of them is also an Oscar nominee? Um, Sometimes in the... Definitely the later it gets on, the less likely it is that one of them gets right, Oscar yeah, attention. But... I, I noticed this of like this is very much like in the era of like them nominating like movies that are for adults. And then like yeah, it becomes like they're just nominating like comic book and other uh you know, blockbuster villains. But yeah, yeah, because I guess the other one like Malkovich got nominated for in the line of fire, right? Like for the Oscar? Maybe. I don't know. I feel this comes up in that episode, but it's... Yeah, Malkovich gets the best supporting nom, so, yeah, this is... Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, looking at this list, I guess, uh... Yeah, I guess I don't really know. None of these are sticking out as things that I am aware of having been... Oscar nominated, uh, not to bring up Spacey again, but like again, that's the same year as Usual Suspects, which could be a nominee, but they nominate him for seven instead. Uh, I think Pesci was nominated for Casino, maybe. Yeah, that that makes sense. Cause see, Casino has a lot of. No, he wasn't. He has uh, three nominations for. Um, all are supporting actor nominations for Scorsese movies, but it's Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Irishman. Oh. But. Hmm. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, maybe it's just those Ni- two. Oh, Nicholson got a supporting actor f- nom for A Few Good Men, which is wild. Cause, uh, yeah. hmm. They really got a, got a lot out of his like big speech at the end of that movie, which is like the extent of his performance in that film. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Then, yeah. With. And yeah, that makes. Oh, and De Niro sense. gets no. De Niro gets nommed for Cape Fear. Um. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So a pretty um, consistent rate so far of oh, like. And I think. I think. Yeah, that's maybe it so far. I think looking through, there's maybe a couple. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah somewhere down. You, can, you know, you'll get to this when you get to. Yeah, this. I guess we'll have to keep track. Oh, but... I mean, there's there's some big ones in like the mid two thousands. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, including one where there's kind of just the the winner lines up because it kind of had to. Um, <laughs> Yeah, now I'm just, like, looking at all of the things that I didn't pick, and I'm like, yeah, I probably made the right call, even if I don't like any of these movies. But yeah, this is, like, Norton's first film. The same year he uh-huh. the same yep. year he does a couple films, including The People vs. Larry Flint, which is another pretty right. major movie to just be, have, be one of your right. first performances yeah. in. Yeah. Um... <laughs> And yeah, I mean, he uh, he was like, uh, I mean, he's not like he's playing a nineteen-year-old in this movie, but I think he's like twenty-six or twenty-seven when this is happening. But yeah, he definitely did kind of feel at this point like a sort of like acting prodigy. Yeah, 
Oh yeah, so Ben, this is kind of the twist movie, per se, that we were talking about earlier, yeah. Sure. Yeah, right. Which, like, I... So, like, I... This was another movie that I was like, oh, maybe this will be good. I like Edward Norton. I... And, like, I... So, I knew that it was, like, a split personality thing. So, like, when that kind of early twist happens, I was like, okay, so, yeah, that's the twist. The twist is that he has this split personality. And then I was like, I guess that the villain nomination must be specifically for his performance as Roy. But then there's this final scene (laughs) that recontextualizes the rest of the movie where it's like, no, he's just been faking it. Roy is just him. Uh, And the the other, the sort of mild-mannered, stuttering guy uh, that Richard Gere has spent this whole movie trying to get off is a performance. Um, Which, like, that moment and Norton's sort of delivery of it, like, it did, like, get me. I was like, oh, that's not what I thought was happening. But, like, I don't know that it makes sense. I don't know that it really helps the rest of the movie make sense. And ultimately, it can't save that it can. This movie, except for maybe when Norton is on screen, is mostly just boring. Yeah. Um, of the yeah, two yeah. courtroom yeah, to... of the two courtroom movies we covered, yeah. it's probably the better film. But I'll say I'm definitely yes, more entertained I mean... by the other film we cover here, except for when Norton's on screen. We were like, "Oh yeah, I understand immediately why he became a big star." Like, <laughs> I mean, the other courtroom drama that we're gonna get to, uh, I can not to spoil it, but I can recall few films that I have found to be so. <laughs> thoroughly boring and completely devoid of interest but we'll get to that uh this is definitely the one that i prefer even if i like don't think it's very good and like don't actually think like i don't know like it the twist at the end of like norton being norton's character being this kind of mastermind it like makes more it makes it makes his performance make more sense because, like, I found him to be captivating, but also it's like he's like doing like a weird stutter thing that's like not really working, and the southern accent is kind of weird. But then when you realize that, like, that is a performance, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I don't know if I buy that all of the other characters were buying this performance, though I. I mean, like, the one who is, like, toughest to swallow is, like, the McDormand character who, um, is playing a psychologist who's been hired to evaluate him. It's, like, it, like, I don't know if I buy that this guy is, like, such a mastermind that he could have a psychologist completely, uh, fooled. But, like, I don't know. Ultimately, it's, like, that part of the movie is like I'm fine with that being kind of like a silly doesn't totally make sense the problem is just like the rest of the movie is not doing that the rest of the movie is just like boring courtroom shit and like there's stuff where like um this this is 
when if you take the like last scene Alfre Woodard's last scene at face value when like they all think that he's this tr- that Norton's character is this troubled kid uh she's like okay I'm dismissing the jury I'm uh saying that he is insane and he's gonna go in for evaluation but if you want to pass someone off as insane don't plea not guilty next time and I'm like that's entirely on her he asked for more time to psychologically evaluate him and she said no and he then determined that he was insane in the process of that psychological evaluation that she would not give him more time for. And so, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess it makes sense that a judge would not acknowledge their error there, but it is like, if that was just the end of the movie and that was how it played out, I would have been like, she's acting like she's mad and put upon and he was making a mockery of her courtroom, but like, that's 100% on her. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. just another thing about the movie where I'm just like, this is not well thought out. Yeah, I think um, I, I'm glad that we do get two courtroom dramas because I feel like we get two very different takes. Um, uh, just one second, sorry. I have to go let my dog in. Mm-hmm. Just one moment. Yeah, uh. I'll say it's definitely it's. I I do I do see what you're saying where you're like oh yeah no it was absolutely just like the judge's kind of fault but she's maybe not taking responsibility though I would also be mad if I like put let my client be in a situation where I knew would probably result in him attacking a woman like just sure that's true that that's on gear yeah um just. I mean, yeah, the other thing is just, like, I feel like most of these actors are, like, not being asked to do the thing that they're good at. Like, Richard Gere is someone who I have, like, no problem with, but he's playing this kind of, like, tough, charming Chicago guy in this movie, and it's like, I don't buy him as that. He's not like a a witty guy. And there's like a lot of guy, a lot of actors in this movie who are like being asked to do like kind of like witty, pattery, faux Sorkin dialogue, I guess. Um, and like most of them, it's like that's not. I love Laura Linney, but not what I want to see Laura Linney do. Um. Or, or then, like, John Mahoney, like, he is an excellent dramatic actor, but, like, I don't know if I want John Mahoney to it be, like, the totally straight-faced, like, if Norton weren't eventually revealed to be the villain, like, he would probably be the most clearly villainous performance in the movie of just, like, kind of yeah. having... uh I mean, I guess the priest briefly appears in the movie before he's killed and in that tape, but, like, like, uh, of of, of Mahoney being this guy who just, like, is this, like, corrupt uh, state attorney who, like, 
turned a blind eye to this sexual abuse uh, by this uh, priest. Um, it's just like no, very few actors in this movie are like doing are like being used correctly. I think like yeah, Mahoney should be in like a chair. Maybe have a little dog. Like just <laughs> kind of. I mean. <laughs> Take this. Sure. I mean, like, yeah, no, um, or like, this is the year that Frances McDormand wins Best Actress for Fargo, and she like barely has anything to do in this movie. Like, I feel like one of the few people, other than Norton, who I'm like, this is playing to their strengths and they're like up to it. Is like Andre Brower. I'm like, yeah, this is like a good role for Andre Brower, I guess. Like, an early, I would imagine, Andre Brower role. But just, like, most of the actors in this movie just feel miscast to me. And, like, I, I, I don't know if it's a significantly better movie, if it were better cast. Like, I think that the the lead character that Gear is playing is, like, ultimately just, like, not that interesting a character but i'd imagine that there's probably like i don't know like there must be someone who could have like pulled that off a little better um it's hard to say like who at this time i don't know yeah no um i think yeah probably i think while i was gone i think you I think you were kind of hitting on something that I was about to uh, start talking about is that I kind of like that we get sort of, I think in a time to kill, I feel like we get like a very sort of romanticized view of lawyers, um, uh, at least on like one side. <laughs> kind like, in this of. Movie. Yeah. Um, but on in this movie. Like, right. This movie is like, very, they're all fucking pieces of shit. They're all. Yeah. Yeah. They're all scumbag. And I, I, I. <laughs> I, I do I do kind of like yeah that. I mean the characterization like, of the gear character is weird where like it I mean with yeah. him it's like he's not like a good guy necessarily but it is kind of like set up of like no he is taking this case because his heart is in it and he believes that uh the Norton character is innocent which means that the end just kind of being him like i think that's supported by the end of the movie just being like a freeze frame on him being like what have i done that i got this guy off and it's like i don't know he just fucking tricked you you there's nothing you can do about that yeah it's kind of at odds (laughs) that they set him up as a win-at-all-costs attorney if his journey is he takes a case he cares about and then is left disillusioned which like, right. First, yeah. it's like you can't disillusion him. He's Richard Gear. Like he's not like a young yeah. guy. Like it's right. Yeah, he should know this already. Like it's <laughs> and like it seems yeah, like he like... does. He's like set up as this like disillusioned lawyer. I mean, like I think he is maybe playing younger than he is, considering that his love interest is Laura Linney. But like. It is like it's weird, like the way the way it. I I don't know. This character like doesn't make sense to me dramatically. Yeah, because like it's it's origin. It's initially set up of like I think he understands that like yeah he probably did it, but we're gonna get him off. And then at the end of the movie, he's like upset that he was his first inclination was kind of correct. 
Right. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Which is super weird. And then, yeah, to kind of roll back around to like the twist part of this, I think it it makes it like a more I don't even say more interesting movie. It makes it a more interesting experience, but it makes it infinitely less interesting to like talk about through the villain lens. Where like Lord. I was expecting like we were gonna have to like grapple with like how villainous can someone be if like it is so blatantly like out of their control. And then it turns out they're maybe the most evil right. person we've ever like had to talk about yet in terms of like villains on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like yeah, it's just like I feel like the what if there was like a person that was like sort of a, a Jekyll and Hyde I, type or I guess right. like not exactly. I, mean, I feel like the point of that was that they're both kind of bad um right i mean i'm like not totally clear on like what exactly where to like think of like the morality of this i guess baron stampler or roy character like there is a reference to him having killed this other girl so like clearly it is like he is a bad guy certainly and he's like doing this like master manipulation but like ultimately it seems like he's maybe was still justified in having killed the priest or is it the idea that like he was also sort of complicit in the sexual abuse of those other i guess they're all over 18 but young adults and that, like, he knew what was going on and is just killing the priest to cover his tracks. I'm like, I don't, I maybe I just, like, didn't fully absorb everything he says in that final monologue. Just because it is so sort of shocking, the reveal of, like, no, he's the real villain. Um, That it, like, I, I don't know if it totally, like, successfully lays the groundwork of uh laying out his villainy i will also say i just looked up because i um i i was we were talking about how like this uh richard gear character doesn't make sense and i it is based on a book so i was like is this like a series where they're all about this guy and it turns out there are two sequels to the book and it's they're still about the it's they're it's both they're all about the two of them. It's not like we're just gonna follow Martin Vale taking on other cases. It's these are two other points in his life at which Martin Vale intersects with Aaron Stampler. So, so obviously it's like a Hannibal like, type thing. Like just right, like Martin Vale is not interesting enough to sustain his own series. Uh, but this guy did write more of these books and had to just keep using Aaron Stampler. It's it, the the second one is called Show of Evil, and the third one is called um, Rain in Hell. Rain in Hell, and it sounds like the second the second one. It sounds like is very much like a Hannibal thing, where like he's defending another guy who has some sort of ties to Aaron Stampler. The third one... The third one sounds great. Yeah, the third one, this is the Wikipedia plot. Martin Vale, now a United States attorney, is assigned a case in which he must go up against a survivalist militia and unexpectedly encounters his nemesis, 
Aaron Stampler, seemingly back from the dead and posing as a blind Baptist preacher. So I guess he dies at the end of the second one. And they're like, no, we still have to bring him back because I want to write more of these. But Martin Vale cannot sustain a narrative on his own. Which is, uh, yeah. I don't know. I would hazard a guess that these books, uh, probably all three of them, are not especially good. Um, the second one, I guess, came out before the movie. And then the third one came out the year after. So it was a pretty condensed period of time uh, yeah. where William Thiel was writing these books. Um, huh. I wonder and if... it doesn't seem like he has like other famous books. Oh, I, I haven't heard of any of the other books he's written. Yeah. Oh, this just feels like prime material for like someone to just announce, like Amazon to announce a remake or a series tomorrow. Which, Absolutely. Yeah. They're like, we're doing all three of them now. Especially. Finally, you will get the whole Martin Vale and Aaron Stampler um, saga. Also, yeah, a thought I had is, I wonder if this film was made like today, if the thread about abuse in the Catholic Church, considering what we now, like, definitely... <laughs> I'm, I mean, it's now wider known than it is wide, probably wider known now than it was in 1996, if my memory of this is, if that would be more part of the narrative, because here it's just like, can I you believe so. it? The Catholic like, Church is, like, bad? Yeah, it is, like, it's kind of, like, a tossed aside part of, like, it. it's not positioned as, like, part of a wider pattern of abuse, it's just, like, well, this guy was bad and the city was enabling him, but nothing about, like, the church enabling this on a mass level. Yeah. It... And I'll say I was kind of annoyed that after I'm like, oh, I guess they just didn't on the extreme because they didn't want to give away the twist villain when I realized. I'm like, wait, is he going to be a twist villain? And then even after, like, they revealed, like, his, yeah, just kind of the yeah, he has his big disassociative identity. I'm like, right. I'm like, I still don't know if I can yeah. trust this. And sure enough, it's and uh, also the the thing where he reveals he's like, no, you knew I was faking it. You're on my side. Did kind right, of remind me yeah. of a recent big blockbuster that does the same thing where the villain's like, well, oh, we were working true. together. You were on my yes, side. That is true. It is yeah. similar to that. Um. That that film was certainly not the reason why we rescheduled this the first time. No. <laughs> yeah, and like it's it's kind of funny that like this whole this movie's big twist is that this murderous criminal who clearly has like some sort of disconnect with reality is going to get the help he needs, and that's awful. <laughs> yeah. Because um, like he's clear, like even though he's he's revealed that like ha I was just pretending like. He's not, like, a mentally well person. Like, him going to, like, the institution is not a bad thing. The idea thing. is that, like, he was fully aware of everything that he was doing and was, like, making a concerted effort to get away with murder. Whereas, like, Gear thought, like, oh, he's, like, very unwell. He is maybe not even aware that he committed this murder. Um, which is clearly not the case. And, like, yeah, certainly he is not um, mentally stable, but, like, I do not... It, if, like, the facts... If he had, like, confessed to all that 
he would have been convicted of murder. Yeah, it. Uh, I'll say it. It certainly is like kind of a thing where it's like, oh, right. What did we think of mental health care in the nineties? Um, and sure, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not an enlightened film. Um, none of these films that we're talking about. Well, I guess I maybe did make an argument that um, the fan is maybe particularly enlightened in terms of uh, sports labor relations, but most of these movies are not particularly enlightened. No, I would say. Um. Yeah, so do we have anything else we want to say about Primal Fear? or? Uh, I mean, I guess the only actor I didn't get to is that Terry O'Quinn is also in this, and him it's just like a bummer that he has like nothing to do. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, I was surprised by like, the number of them. Like, like, I know this person who pops yep, up in this. John Locke. Yeah. Um, but like, not that I expected. It's almost like I wasn't surprised that he didn't have anything to do, because like, obviously he hadn't done lost at this point though i knew that he was like somewhat established as a a working actor by the time lost happened it's more surprising to me that like he is in it as much as he is without having anything to do (laughs) was a little disappointing but oh well not a movie that is uh good at using its actors as i've established even though it has a pretty outstanding cast i guess more a tyranny also in a fairly early role kind of just like uh as richard gears employee who he yells at yes yeah, i think ben you got any more primal fear thoughts <laughs> uh no not really i think we kind of covered pretty much everything about it wow um i think Weird. I think we're well. We're just about to get into it because I, I honestly, I really like a time to kill. <laughs> um, so it's it's the one I like out of. I think it's the one I probably like out of the two of these, out of the two courtroom dramas. But I do the thing I appreciate way more about Primal Fear is that it just it's representation of like um of like the lawyers. Um, it's just a little bit more like I like that they're all just trying to get their own bag. I really like that a lot. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So speaking of films with like surprisingly stacked casts that may or may not have well served them. A Time to Kill really is just like down the cast and down the cast and like Jonathan Hattery, who's like one of my favorite character actors. This is like his first major movie role. Um, He's like, I I think he's like had a lot of work as a theater actor, but he Actually, he plays a lawyer in uh, Margaret, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, the aforementioned Kenneth Lonergan. Um, he's he's got like a very silly. In fact, most of his uh, roles I'm thinking of involve the court because he's got a very funny role in um, Intolerable Cruelty in like a courtroom scene where he's playing like a a bizarre witness. Um, I haven't seen that in a while, but I think he's playing like some sort of baron who's, I don't even remember why they're in court, though that's also Clooney and Zeta-Jones are both lawyers in that movie. And I think that movie is about them being like played off against each other as lawyers and also as potentially lovers. Um, 
that's a yeah that's a, a movie that is one of has the reputation as being one of the not very good Cohen movies that has a lot of really phenomenal comic performances in it including Jonathan Hattery who I think I think he in this movie he's the guy who like Maybe he's playing a lawyer, or maybe he like works with like I think the NAACP has like tried to raise funds to hire a different lawyer to uh defend Samuel L. Jackson and he's somewhere in that scene. Um yeah. No nothing about this movie is interesting. Um why don't <laughs> why don't you one of you set it up? Okay, so I'm in 10th grade, and we've just finished reading To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, wow. <laughs> I think I think we have the same Yeah, story. and our teacher <laughs> is like, kind of, she's like, well, we could watch the To Kill a Mockingbird movie, critically acclaimed, Gregory Peck. But she's like, but, you know, it's going to be kind of the book. So I think it would be more valuable if you watched something that had similar <laughs> themes, and then thought about, like, how it compared it. So we watched A Time to Kill... It's two thousand. It's two thousand eight. A young Barack Obama is like making everyone believe again. So like, so mm. I watch this and I'm like, yeah, like this is the most. Oh, I I probably watch it at the perfect moment for like some some you know like vague right time to kill. Yeah, the, sure. the perfect moment for me to go. Yeah, this is like fun. And then I and then I watch there. I'm like, oh right, yeah. This. <laughs> I mean, it was a movie where just thinking about it, I'm like. Oh, this probably does not hold up as well as it did when I was like fifteen and optimistic and like just right. looking at all that. I stuff. mean, yeah. I mean, I'll say like I don't. Again, I don't have much to say about this movie because I was I watched it three weeks ago while incredibly high. Uh, but like my main takeaway from this movie is like the vast majority of it stunningly boring don't care at all about anything that's happening i guess samuel l jackson is pretty good in it because he always is and then at the and then the end of this movie i just thought was i i was flabbergasted that anyone would pull this move of what happens at the end of this movie is i mean the movie starts (laughs) with like fairly graphically depicting the rape and attack of this young girl uh, who is Samuel L. Jackson's daughter who he ends up killing the perpetrators and then the end of the movie is Matthew McConaughey as his defense attorney describing this attack in graphic detail and just like it's like horrifying and like that everyone has to like sit through that and that we the audience have to sit through that and then he is like, and now imagine if that little girl were white. And then everyone's just like, oh my God, <laughs> we're racist. And everyone, the jury who we've seen the jury want to convict him, they're like, it very quickly wraps up of like, no, of course we can't convict him. Matthew McConaughey is right. We are racist. We should let him off. And then the movie just ends. Um, and I just was really taken aback by um, the tastelessness of that. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's kind of my, the entirety of my thoughts on that movie. Look. Again, uh, Kiefer Sutherland did not register for me. 
at all, even though I knew that he was theoretically the part I should be paying attention to. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, even as someone, I, I pay attention. I do I do like this movie. Um, but it is, it is, I think it's one of those movies that I enjoy, um, but I think I only have bad things to say about it. Um, <laughs> sure, I mean, I can see, yeah. like, if you're, like, into just, like, sort of courtroom sort of stuff being like i mean like it's kind of tasteless and but like it sort of has its heart in the right place and is like some of the machinations are like maybe interesting i just like from moment one was out on it and so as a result when that was the conclusion i was like no you can't do this look i can't defend the big speech where he graphically describes something we've already seen which was already mm-hmm. hard enough to watch the first time and i'll say I, I no no clue as to how he has all those graphic details did he did the little girl did he make the little girl describe it to him i would imagine some of it is just this has been playing in his mind it to samuel l jackson and then samuel l jackson <laughs> relayed it to him any way that he has all this detail is fairly horrifying um yeah, I'll say, yeah, yeah this is a bunch of actors I enjoy, and one awful one, um, doing, like, yeah, giving performances, wow, I... You hate, you hate Matthew McConaughey that much. <laughs> yeah. Um... I, until you mentioned him earlier, I had forgotten that Kevin Spacey was in this movie. He registers even less than Keith or Sutherland for me. As, like, the racist prosecutor, um, it's... Yeah. Yeah. I'll say, as a kid, I thought the Samuel L. Jackson thing, where he's like, you, he's like, look, he's like, you're defending, he's like, when you look at me, you don't see a man, you see, like, a black man, that's why I want you, because, like, you, yeah, you're one of the bad guys, like, you don't, like, right. I think that scene's, like, kind of interesting, the, do you think our kids will ever play together, and then he brings his daughter over, like, at the end for a barbecue, like, uh, when I was 15, I'm like, oh, mm. that's cute, and then, like, now I'm like, okay, this, like, it kind of works, like, I... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess you're right that, like, Samuel L. Jackson's character making that observation at least, like, sets up that, like, what he does at the end is not the act of, like, a moral man. It's the act of a man who's, like, working in the system and is like, I know what's going to work. But still, to actually just, I, I don't know, it just, I guess you're right that, like, the movie has some awareness of the sort of tasteful tastelessness of what McConaughey's character is doing. It still just feels tasteless to have yeah. it in the movie. It's just reasonable. Like it's But like it's you know, like there is no movie if that doesn't happen. That's the whole movie is leading up to that. Yeah. There's yeah, there there is like some myths from like, oh, this is maybe a bit more nuanced than I like expected, even as yeah, a lot of it's just kind of Yeah. Here we're gonna solve racism in the nineties, folks. Here you go. Here's your like KKK guy. It everything's big mm-hmm. and broad, and then we'll give this terrifying speech at the the end and yeah, it, it'll be like there. Um And maybe that speech in nineteen ninety six had the same effect on uh movie audiences that it did on the people who were in that courtroom yeah like it's 
Um, yeah, it's all... boy, just a tough pill to swallow for me in 2022. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I'll say something that I think maybe would have actually, for a moment, I thought that it is what they were kind of implying, but there's the whole thing, because the idea is before Samuel L. Jackson shoots these men, he goes to Matthew McConaughey, and basically McConaughey is given a pretty good idea that, oh, maybe something's bad bad here, maybe he should alert the sheriff, and he uh, ultimately decides not to, and in my mind, I'm like, well, they're just going to reveal. He like purposely chose not to because he kind of wanted this to happen, but the film does sort of play it off as, oh, he just didn't think that Samuel L. Jackson would do this, which maybe right. kind of plays into it, but I think the film is more interesting if Matthew McConaughey is more complicit in Samuel L. Jackson, like, shooting these sure. men more than, oh, I just forgot to tell the sheriff, because I didn't think it would actually be a threat. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. What do you think, Ben? On this? Yeah, um, yeah, this movie, it's it's incredibly corny um that's like the best way to describe it mm -hmm. um which like i can definitely see the tastelessness in that because it's this movie subject matter i don't feel like meshes well with like a very corny um, right. hokey attitude um but like i i can't help though but be like kind of swept up away in it sometimes mm -hmm. um like with the scene i don't know the scene where the dog comes back always makes me super happy um, I just can't help but love that. Um, Matthew McConaughey's character, and this is a bad thing, is objectively flawless in this movie and has nothing to overcome um, other than, like, other people. But, like, he doesn't have any personal flaws that he needs to, like, that I he needs guess. to like, challenge I his mean, like, like He, he kind of realizes he's a bit racist. <laughs> Yeah, but like, but he that never he never has to like confront that or solve that. That's so that's what I mean. That sorry. him being racist, yeah. is presented by the movie as a a, a yeah. good thing. It's like, oh no, but that's just a fact. That, yeah, he's good at using his racism. He's one of the good racists. Yeah, and like, yeah, sorry. Not, not that he's flawless. Is that he never has to confront? There's not like everything that's an obstacle to him is external to him. Um, there's no like personal mm -hmm. like soul searching he has to do at all. Right, in this movie, there is which can this... make for a very boring protagonist. Right, I mean, then it is this like weird dichotomy where it's like almost what the movie is saying about that character is like he is a racist, but he's a good person, and so it's actually good that he's racist because he can empathize with the racist and still be good. Which is, I think, very different than if the idea of the movie was that he had to confront the internalized racism and overcome it. It's, it's, it's not that. And if it were presented as that, then maybe it would be more successful and look better in 2022. Yeah. And it, I guess if I'm being entirely honest... Um, I do prefer his like current state them to him just being like, oh, I'm just this, I'm actually not racist at all. And I come from this time period just because I'm so great. Um, I, I much prefer that he's actually like pretty accurate to the time period and have a lot of like um, both conscious and unconscious biases. It's just that those never, 
they're brought up in that one scene that Kenny talked about yeah. with him and Samuel Jackson. Also, him and Samuel Jackson don't get enough scenes. Like, I love Sandra mm. Bullock. Cut her from the movie entirely. Replace all of her scenes with Samuel Jackson <laughs> and Matthew McConaughey scenes. Um, yeah, that might be better. Yeah, I don't know what she's doing. She's not compelling. They have, like, a not-romance-romance. Right, because he's married. Yeah, she's pivotal plot-wise. And she has, like, a few, like, epic scenes where, like, she comes and brings, like, the thing. But, like, I don't know. Like, and, like, they have, like, I guess, like, one quasi-interesting conversation about the death penalty. Um, I also was talking about right. Ian earlier. And he's, like, Ian was, like, oh, yeah, I forgot Matthew McConaughey's character just loves the death penalty. And that's yeah. one of his character traits. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but, like, but all this being said, I do really like this movie. Um, and it, yeah, like Kenny, I also was shown this movie. Um, I think we wa- we we watched the To Kill a Mockingbird movie and this movie in class, <laughs> um, which was important because I was horrible at reading books and I almost never did it like mm-hmm. appropriately. Um, but it's I I for as a kid I was always like it's so weird that we watched the movie. These are both like um, like racialized movie. One's about um, somebody who didn't do the crime. And gets convicted for it. And one is about someone who does do the crime, but gets, like, innocent. Gets, like, um, is, is acquitted. acquitted, but, yeah. like, yeah. Um, and that always, that always, like, as a kid, that was very confusing to me. It is a weird um, play yeah. on the sort of The Kill a Mockingbird thing. Yeah. yeah You're it's, right. It's, um, but it ends up being kind of, like, a little bit, like, interesting as, like, a result. Um we also just, um, I hope, and this this was um, thematic and absolutely intentional on our part. Um, the reason we haven't been talking about the villain at all is because it's like really boring and not that interesting part mm-hmm. of the story. Yep. Um, in terms of like his like like Keith Sutherland's like performances yeah. in that he puts on a KKK um, robe and like or something yeah. like Donald Sutherland. It's do you think Donald Sutherland like? It was kind of a thing where it's like, I'll do the film, but you ought to toss my son Key for this part here. Like, it's like, <laughs> Keith Sutherland has given good performances. Yeah, I mean, looks. Since this movie, I have rewatched Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, which he is, he's not even necessarily in the most interesting part of that movie, but he in his little prelude with uh, Chris Isaac is, like, excellent, yeah. I think. I guess he makes uh, enough of an impression of Schumacher that he brings him back for Phone Booth. Um, oh, sure. Yeah, a film we're going to have to... Co- yeah, a film we're going to cover at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he, like... Yeah, I mean, I... What's he been up to, like, since 24? Nothing is, like... He did... Designated Survivor, where he's like the the one guy who doesn't die, and then it kind of did two seasons on cable, and then was like a Netflix show, maybe. Like it's. I thought that I think that was a network TV show. Yeah, it was like yeah, it was like ABC. It's like Kiefer Sutherland's next big TV show. It gets two Uh seasons, then it gets canceled, and I'm like, okay, I I'd watched like half the first season. I'm like, yeah, I'm not into this, and then suddenly there was enough of a fan base where they're like Netflix, and Netflix is like, yeah, we'll do Designated Survivor. Um, oh, he did he did a QB. He did the fugitive for QB. Oh, I know what I'm thinking of. The one kind of 
thing that he pops in, and this was a while ago at this point, is that he is in Melancholia as, um, he plays Charlotte Gainsbourg's husband, uh, so, uh, Kirsten Dunn's uh, brother-in-law in that movie. Yeah. He's pretty good in that. He gets a lot of stuff to do in the second half, because that's really just Dunst Gainsbourg and him. Okay. I think he's playing, like, a scientist, maybe. Yeah. Uh, yeah later this be... year, he will be on the First Lady miniseries playing FDR. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And then... Oh, right. Another, another thing he does is... yeah, He made a cameo on the... Canadian sitcom Corner Gas. Ben, did you ever see this? Where they, yeah. Wait, wait. Sorry, who? Kiefer Sutherland on Corner <laughs> Gas. Um, <laughs> wait, what episode did he it's, play? It's I the episode like where, like, it's wait. the main character's birthday. I'm going to assume that most of our listeners are like Americans who have not watched Corner Gas, but it's the main character's birthday, and it's kind of counting down to midnight, and then the the one like cop character is concerned about like the fireworks. So he's like, I'm going to call, call for backup. And the guy's like, Oh, you, he's like, you can't call the mayor's like, you can't call like the field hockey team or something again. But then he's call, but then he inadvertently calls, um, whoever. And it's like, he, for someone picking, he's like, we need a perimeter. He's like, what, who is this? He's like, what? So it's not the coach of like the football team or like whatever the bit. He's like, no, this is like the Douglas reverend. Residence, and then you hear his Shirley Douglas go, Kiefer, who's on the phone? He's like, Go back to bed, mom. And he's like, You live with your mother? Like, that's just a whole bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's sure. so good. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> but, and that was like, I've certainly never heard of this program, but that sounds like, uh, it's, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's feasible to me, I guess, that that bit would work if you know what the show is. It's the closest thing Canada had to Seinfeld in terms of, like, impact wow. and, like, okay. kind of style. Um, Did you not just watch Seinfeld in Canada? It was, it, yeah, but this is, like, here's, like, Canadian Seinfeld. Sure. It was, okay. It's a popular, yeah. like, ensemble sitcom, just life in a small Canadian okay. town, sure. which yeah. Shit's Creek, I think, later perfects where they're like, what if Eugene Levy was there and there was more incident? Um, uh, that's probably all. I mean, unless anyone has anything else to say about nope. Time to Kill. I certainly do not. Oh. Uh, nor do I have anything more to say about the next film, which I don't remember any of my thoughts on at this point. That's probably good. Maybe something, yeah. maybe something that one of you says will jog my memory. Or maybe we can just go through it very quickly, because we're going very long. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, we are two yeah. hours and 16 minutes into this episode, and we haven't yeah. got to the last it's, Okay, <laughs> the one thing that I remember about Fear is it's okay if we rush through Fear. <laughs> yeah, this is this was the first one I watched. This is the farthest away, so I've had mm-hmm. the most to stew on it. Um I didn't. I didn't like this. Movie. No, it's terrible. Um, I don't. I don't remember it's... why it's terrible, but I <laughs> certainly remember that I, it's terrible. There's a few cool things. Uh, there are awful things. Um, I think one thing, and that I guess this speaks more to like probably the, um, <laughs> like the really, uh, I guess messed up uh, culture of the time, and also a little bit today, is that like. I honestly don't know for the first little bit if he's going to turn out to be a bad guy. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I was watching this with uh, me and uh, Kenny's friend, Ethan, who I'd imagine has been on this podcast. Three like, times. Pretty, oh, great. Pretty far into the movie, Ethan was like, who is the villain in this? Who who got the villain nomination? <laughs> yeah, and like, um, I mean, when he when he fingers the girl on the roller coaster, he was already a villain in my books because that was awful. That scene is um, that is insane. <laughs> I think that's why Ethan wanted to watch it with me is that he had heard that that happened, and huh. yeah, it is insane that that happens in the movie and is insane like the way it's shot and soundtrack. And the thing is, it's not even like a slow build. It's not like there's just a scene where like he beats up. Um, I can't even remember the name of the actual protagonist of this movie. Uh, Steven, um, like the like the yeah. dad. Just no, no, no. Um, the the girl, the Reese Witherspoon um, character. Oh, uh, uh, I think that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, Reese Witherspoon as Nicole. Yeah. Nicole. Yeah. 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 Um, he like beats up like one of her guy friends oh right puts yeah. her her. and then after that point he is there's a flip is switched and he is just like crazy now um and it's just really boring um <laughs> yeah he's does like a kind of funny voice he's uh, mark Wahlberg is mark Wahlberg is not a good actor um from what i've seen him in i like him in ted because if the Ted movies were a person, they would be Mark Wahlberg. I like it when the other guys in Daddy's Home too. Um, okay, you know what? I f- I always forget about the Daddy's the other, Home. The other uh, guys is movies. like the one McKay comedy that doesn't totally work for me. I don't know if it's because of him, but like I don't have any affection for him. Oh, I oh I love. I mean, the other he likes, and he like is not. He's in Pain and Gain, which I think is pretty good, but I don't think he's doing as interesting work as The Rock is in that movie. I feel like, have I, I feel like there's like something, I mean, he's good in Boogie Nights, obviously, um, which is the year after this, I guess, but yeah, he's, he's pretty infrequently good. We could lose his career and we'd be fine the few good movies he's in someone but then we wouldn't have entourage Mm-hmm. I've never yeah. seen Entourage. I assume it's bad. <laughs> I've seen three episodes of Entourage: the episode where they go to Cannes, and the two episodes when they go to Sundance, and it's really, really dreadful. Yeah, I'll say the thing about Fear is its Wikipedia like plot summary is one, two, three, four, six paragraphs long. Um, roughly five of those paragraphs happen in the last twenty minutes of the movie. <laughs> right that's like the i guess that's like the like home invasion part of the movie is like i guess because it like kind of turns itself off brain wise it is like just doing this home invasion thing is like moderately more compelling than the like domestic drama stuff that it just is terrible at it does. It like it drastically shifts from it like fully in the last twenty minutes becomes just a bog standard home invasion movie where like uh, William Peterson becomes the protagonist. Yeah, and it like it's weird because it almost had like a one percent interesting scene where like the cop is being snuck up on, but the cop actually like ducks in time, and I was like, oh, this is like a right. neat subversion of like. 
usually getting like killed but then he's just killed anyway by the second guy that sneaks up on him and it's like oh this is boring again yeah um Mm -hmm. also all the dialogue in this movie is incredibly written Mm. um two characters talking to each other never sound like people Uh um like the what they're saying to each other sounds like like just so it sounds so processed um it's like insane to me um i I, like i don't know how to describe it other than like yeah it just feels like written it did no it is the antithesis of naturalistic dialogue yeah also this is so i I was like is this the first reese wilvers film we've covered i'm like no we've covered cruel intentions a film i literally just rewatched but like Mm. yeah it is this point where it's it's like that this is like kind of the biggest role she's had yet and i think this is an early role for her where she does not have a ton to ton to do no, besides going i mean that's true she but she isn't particularly good at this i don't know. yeah it's <laughs> excuse me i don't think yeah yeah this movie is kind of like it's like the perfect storm of not working <laughs> um where it's like <laughs> it's like there are some movies where like the 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 main person and like the movie just kind of click and it all works at the end. This is like a And did you make a pun because Mark Wahlberg is like in the perfect storm? No, I actually didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm glad I did accidentally though. Um because like yeah it's like this movie is holistically bad. Like not only is it like not fun, but all of its elements add together to make it not fun mm-hmm. in a way that all just like meshes together. Um, like Mark Wahlberg in a way is perfect for this movie. Um, but credit where credit is due. There are two things in this movie that stand out. Um, him dying at the end is really funny. Like him getting thrown out the window, like an insane length. Oh yeah. that does. Um, and yeah, the dog cool. head. The dog mm, head was mm-hmm. shocking. Yeah, I mean that, that was a yes, shocking scene. True. And I will I yeah. will give the movie credit where credit is due. Um oh also um there is a scene where two kids or not two kids, but two characters are playing Street Fighter 2. Um and one of them leaves, but the game continues to play as if two people are playing. <laughs> um that annoys the hell out of me. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's something like that in the, in the, not the new, but the middle Jumanji. Um, there's something almost exactly like that in that. And as a certified uh-huh. gamer, it, it, uh, mm-hmm. it ticks me off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if we're going to give this very bad movie credit, I like had some fun just like trying to figure out whether or not William I guess William Peterson is not a very good dad but it was more interesting for me to consider is Amy Brenneman's character a good stepmother um because it there's times when it seems like she's really trying and times where it's just like no that's not the thing to do um and I like Amy Brenneman, but again, no one's really very good in this movie. Um, yeah, I, I and I guess the other, I, I do, I, I do have a, uh, there are a couple of film critics who I, I quite like and have talked to a few times. Um, Anna Swanson, Meg Shields, who 
I was surprised to find out when I went to Letterboxd, both quite like this movie. Um, and I will read both of their brief Letterboxd reviews because uh, they are both entertaining reviews. And in fact, I would say much more entertaining than the movie itself. Um, Anna Swanson's review, these are both four-star reviews. Um, Anna Swanson's review how long do you think it took to explain to Mark Wahlberg that he's not playing the hero? Which I guess ties in to our <laughs> observation that the movie for a long time is not clear on that. Despite, yeah, it it is just weird that this got this nomination. I'm like, why did this stick in the minds of voters? Um and then Meg Shields' review, of course, I love this story about two butch lesbians trying to protect their daughter from a toxic man. <laughs> Which, like, yeah, if you could see the movie like that, I could see being entertained by it. Yeah, it's... I said, like, I'm sure this film has its fans. Sorry, sorry to all the fear fans who... Yeah, who've gotten this far <laughs> into what... The first, like, I think, serious competition we've had for longest episode of the podcast... Since the one that was like us trying not to talk about Lolita for half an hour, but it's mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. Well, we're um, gonna we're unfortunately gonna. I mean, how now? I'm like, how much longer do I have to go to hit longest episode? Um, you don't have to tell me. Yeah, you I won't tell, you. tell me, it's... and we'll just not do it. You'll Great. Be, you'll be up. Th- you'll be up there. <laughs> I'll be close. Yeah, yeah. we don't have. To, yeah. We don't have to do it. <laughs> I think it's better for all of us if we finish this up and go to sleep. Yeah, so it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've... Uh, are there any other, I guess, any other final thoughts on uh, Fear or any of the other movies that we covered Once today? again, a yeah. villain gets defeated by getting thrown out a window. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, I guess, yeah, I guess we really didn't talk about it, um... I guess it's not a death scene, but like the the cable guy getting thrown out to the big. Well, he doesn't get thrown. Cool. He like oh, he falls. He releases jumps. himself. Well, he yeah. tries to jump, yeah. and then Broderick <laughs> catches him because Broderick's like, "This, I hate this guy, but I don't want to see a man die." And then he's like trying to pull him up, and Terry kind of like grabs onto his hand and then just lets go and falls. And then there's like a fake out where you see him from the side. And you think he's been impaled on an antenna, but it turns out he landed right next to it, and he's injured but alive. Uh, yeah. Which is, I guess, maybe dramatically compelling if the movie had been compelling up to that point. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. But I think we can. Uh, How, yeah, what we can jump what, into what our... percentage of these villains die? Um. I guess I, I should have Wahlberg been track, but I have not in the first That's yeah it, in right? our first best villain bets like I'm gonna keep track of how all these villains are defeated how many like die um it's uh huh yeah well I'm glad to bring that I, I... thread back <laughs> and show that it has not I been guess followed. most yeah. of them survive yeah. this week yeah it's, except it's for Wahlberg De Niro dies in Wahlberg De Niro dies. yeah or I guess um, we don't see. Or no, we do see De Niro like take his dying breath. Right. I'm like, oh right, yeah, no, De Niro does die. Um Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you could tell me that Kiefer Sutherland died at some point in the time to kill, and I'd certainly believe you. No uh, but no, Norton Norton's fine. Yeah. No, the he black sheriff gets, gets to arrest him for his crimes. Um, 
Charles Charles S. Dutton gets so he gets arrested. Yeah. He is defeated, and then Norton wins. He is definitively not defeated. Yeah, uh, and it sounds like he's never defeated in the book series. And then he uh, dies for a bit, maybe. Just <laughs> yeah, maybe. I guess it's possible he dies at the end of the third one, but it sounds like you can't. Uh, trust his death um and then carrie carrie i guess there's the implication that he's just gonna keep doing it yeah maybe um but the scene with him and the paramedic so i don't know if he's necessarily defeated but it seems like broderick at least is freed of him and also reunited with Leslie Mann, as i pointed out perhaps against her better judgment yeah um, but now that we've kind of re yeah, sort of revisited all these films, uh, mm-hmm. let's rank them. So, how do they all stack okay. up? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I uh, have tried to think about this, but I still don't think I have a firm order. You want me to go first? Potentially. Like, if you need more time, Ben yeah. could go. No, I can go first. I can right. go first. Yeah, I um, so... Last is Kiefer Sutherland. Doesn't register for me at all. And then I think fourth has to be... Oh, I mean... Uh, well, oh, I mean, oh. We, technically we do the movies on their own first. Oh, we rank the movies first. Okay. Yes. So, I mean, it's gonna be... That's maybe a little different then. Fear is the worst. Then A Time to Kill. Then Primal Fear. Then The Cable Guy. Then The Fan. But we're topping out at, like, two stars. <laughs> Right, and how, Sorry for jumping uh, the gun there. No, it's fine. I'm like, oh, oh right, you probably have to remember. Okay, uh, Ben, what do, what do you got for movie rankings? Yeah, for the movies, I think, yeah, I also have Fear at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think above that, I would have uh, Primal Fear. Um, and then, yeah, right in the middle, I think I have A Time to Kill. Um, and then for my top two, I think I just kind of have to go with my gut and put the cable guy above the fan. <laughs> um, just I just kind of have to go with like how much fun I had watching it. And I don't know, there's just something about the cable guy that just I when I closed it off, I think it was like probably three or two in the morning. Um, <laughs> I just clicked off my phone. I just felt good about it. Um <laughs> Is there's something about the jokes? I think it's weird. It the the cable guy character was weirdly endearing to me. I don't know <laughs> what it is. Um, there's just something about him that he he just wants to have friends, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how does your how does yours shake up? Yeah. Then? So fear at the bottom, then time to kill, uh, then yeah, probably primal fear above that. And then the cable guy, and then yeah, the fan gotta go for my boy Tony Scott on this one. Like it, so we're the right. same in terms of rankings. Just I think wildly. Yeah, diverging. you think they're all bad, and I think like most of them are like pretty good. To yeah, this is great. Um, yeah, yeah. So for villains, uh, yeah. So you had Kiefer Sutherland at the bottom. Just yes, that's yeah. It's like he just has to be at the bottom. I don't remember anything about that character. Uh, and then has to be Mark Wahlberg, who like at the, I you know has over Keith or Sutherland that he like registers as a villain, but he is not good in that movie, nor is that a compelling villain. And I do not know how 
this nomination happened. Um, I think, I mean, like, De Niro and Carrie are, like, pretty neck and neck for me in terms of, like, neither of those performances really work for me, but they're, like, kind of doing interesting things with the personas. I guess I'll put... Hmm. I guess I'll put Carrie third and De Niro second. And then Norton at the top, just because, like, that... I don't like that movie, and that... But, like, that character... That is the movie where, like, the villain is the standout element. And, like, as I said, I don't think that, like, his final monologue holds up to a ton of scrutiny, but, like, in the moment, it's like, wow, he's really, uh... I don't know what it is that he's really doing, but he's really doing something. Uh, he really thought he ate that. Um, so yeah, Norton at the top, uh, but not an especially strong winner. I mean, I was looking at, like, uh, are there any, like, major snubs, given that this feels like a kind of weak category? And we, you did mention Scream, which I have not seen. I would imagine that that might be a snub. The only one that occurred to me, and I, I, I guess haven't seen like a ton of movies from 1996, but um, I guess even two roles in this movie that you could... Well, no, I think the villain role ha in, in Jingle All the Way... I think it has to be Sinbad. I think he'd be the nomination. Yeah. Even though uh, Phil Hartman also is in a bit of an antagonist role. Um, yeah. I, I would maybe put forward Sinbad, but would he beat Edward Norton? Probably not, but I think he would beat everyone else in this field. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> great. Uh, ben, what do you got? <laughs> Yeah, um, I think for my villain, yeah, I think, again, A Time to Kill, uh, Keita Sutherland at the bottom. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, with the, yeah, Mark Wahlberg fear above that. Um, in the middle, uh, right, I would have probably have Edward Norton's character. I was really disappointed. I was really, like, I was hoping that there wouldn't be, like, the final, final twist at the end, because I feel like that just makes him, it just makes it a little more interesting um, as, like, a mm -hmm. villain. I guess it makes the movie possibly a little less interesting i mean the movie is nothing without that twist i think <laughs> um yeah and then um yeah i think honestly my villains shake out very similarly to my um to my movies um but i think it's really t i think i would have to put though robert de niro's fans just above the cable guy though um, I think I like, I think I like the Cable Guy character more, but not as a villain, though. Uh -huh. Whereas Dino's character, it being sparse, he's still, like, really unhinged and, and can be really fun in scenes. Um, and, like, he has, like, he has, like, it's weird. This was, this was kind of, like, a, it was a neat week, um, but definitely not one of our strongest yeah, um, I, I'm like, it is weird to me that most of these performances would get nominated in this category. I was like, what was going on 
with the voting body this year where like this is what excuse me sticks out to them and maybe it was just like overall a really weak year for villains i don't know i didn't like put much thought into like what the big blockbuster movies were and if any of those had like interesting villains i assume there was the big blockbuster was Independence Day, which of course is mostly just oh, like... Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. There's not... There's no oh, actor to nominate for that as a villain. Yeah, and it, the aliens don't stick out as much as T-Rex in Jurassic Park. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't yeah. remember anything about those aliens, so it's been a long time since but, I saw that. But yeah, yeah, Kenny. How did uh, how did your villains? Uh, how did your villains? Yeah, Kiefer at the bottom should have got just Skeet Ulrich in there for Scream. Um, then above that, yeah, Mark Wahlberg probably. Um, above above that, oh, it's interesting. Um, on yeah, honestly, above that, I'm like. I think the top th- my top three performances there, I all think are pretty good and probably pretty close together. I will maybe put De Niro in the three spot, just because, like, he's... I mean, I-, I love the fan. I think he's giving a really good, like, unhinged performance in it, but, like, then... Yeah. But just about that, I think Jim Carrey, Cable Guy, like, He's just sort of utilized so well, like, in terms of, like, mm-hmm. kind of weaponizing his persona, and it works for me personally, and so I would have that that above there, and hmm, trying, to, trying to see it, if, decide on the spot if I want to go with Carrie or Norton. Um, I'll say, yeah, I'm gonna have to give top spot for, like, Edward Norton, just because in, yeah, in terms of, like, best villain, like, as I mentioned, like, just in character terms, maybe, like, one of the most unsettling villains, like, we've ever covered, and even though, yeah, the twist got mm-hmm. spoiled spoiled for me, like, I think there is, like, something to his performance where I'm like, when I realized it was his first big acting role, I'm like, wait, really? Because it... Yeah, it's, it's an impressive piece of yeah. acting. So I, yeah, so I think I gotta, like, acknowledge that, even even if I, you know, like those other mm-hmm. two movies, like, more. Um, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. So that brings us so that so that wraps up 1997. Now we come to recommendation of the week where uh we get to recommend anything we want um to the uh, audience there. Uh, Jesse, do you got anything for this feature I did not remind you about at all? Uh, I mean, I I did remember that it existed. Um I have not Oh, I know what I can recommend. Um, I don't watch very much television, but I have been watching the show Severance, and I don't think everything about it works, uh, but I do think it's like doing some interesting stuff. It's uh, on Apple TV+, Plus, which is not a real streaming service, so you got to figure out where to find it <laughs> but um it stars adam scott it's got uh second build zach cherry which is great i love zach cherry um who you uh listeners uh, i guess would be most likely to know zach cherry as the guy from hello this is editing ben 
probably lost a chunk of audio here. Um, I guess we'll never know what was said. <laughs> uh, love you all. Uh, he in this show is going so big, and in the first episode, I am like, what has prompted Michael Chernis, of all people, to go this big? Does he, like, hate this character for some reason? And then in the third episode, uh, I was very gratified to uh, discover why Michael Chernis is going so big, uh, and he has been very fun. Um, yeah, uh, so yeah, I'll recommend that, and, uh, I'll recommend, um, being, uh, cautious, uh, and wearing a mask when you are in public. Yeah. Everine noms. Yeah, I brought up Severance. I think, uh, I think in narrator's episode a couple of weeks ago. Oh, great. And then, uh, uh, William. I forgot so to use her actual name. Glad to hear that this is a, a pro Severance podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I love Severance. Like, it's, again, it's a show where even if it's at the point where it's like, okay, it's more going to happen. Sometimes there's just a random room of baby goats and it's the most unsettling sure, thing. Yeah. Um, it is, it is a, yeah. I am, like, worried about, like, it needs to start wrapping things up. Like, there's, because of the way that the show works, there is a lot of stuff that with two-thirds of the way through the show is still very much a mystery. And, like, I get that, like, the central mystery of, like, what is going on at Lumen and why are they doing the Severance stuff can wait until the end, but, like, they're like half of the characters we don't know anything about half of them um so yeah i don't know <clears throat> yeah uh ben what it do feels you... like we maybe need to start spending some time with more of, with more of these characters beyond adam scott in yeah. their uh their their other half of their lives. Yeah, my understanding is they are expecting a second season of this. I, I am also under that understanding, but, but I'm yeah. like, but people I will who saw annoyed. the full season are like, this was really good. So I'm assuming there's maybe a something right. a bit more substantial. Yeah, I'm assuming up. it mostly wraps up the stuff that it needs to wrap up while just like leaving a window open of sort of there could be more of this. Uh, I I will be annoyed if it like leaves a bunch of threads hanging. Yeah, uh, Ben, what do you <clears> got <throat> this week? Yeah, um, I sort of have uh, two just music ones. Um, I heard so <laughs> on TikTok. Um, there's a there's a uh, a hip hop song by John Cena. Um, huh called right now which just really has been just really catchy and nice um so give that a listen if you so inclined and then also um uh listen to some of weird owls non-parody stuff because that's always amazing um i think a couple of my favorites are horoscope for today and ringtone i really like those too so those are my my two-ish recommendations for the week just some nice music to listen i've got to say now i also want to make two music recommendations (laughs) um 
One is the album uh, Ants from Up There by Black Country New Road, which is, I think, the best like new album I have heard in several years. Uh, but then the other thing, and it's given my behavior, it's entirely possible that I would have uh, recommended this uh, last time I was on the podcast, but I can't recommend it enough. Uh, I have been the past week-ish re-listening to uh, Fish's Baker's Dozen, which is a run of 13 shows that they did at Madison Square Garden in 2017. Um, where they did not, it was it was over like maybe 20-ish days, maybe even a little less. Um, uh, and they did not repeat a single song over those 13 shows. Uh, and there's just and also each show they gave out a different flavored donut, and that donut was the theme of the show. Uh, and they would like play songs that like tied into that theme in some way. Um, you know, they gave out a strawberry donut. They played Strawberry Fields Forever. Uh, but the most I, I was I was just listening to last night. The most fun. Um, sort of manifestation of that theme thing is uh, I think maybe night seven right around the middle was uh, Boston Cream Night Uh, and for that show during that show they started playing uh, Sunshine of Your Love the Cream song so you're like oh okay that's fun they're gonna do a Cream song because Cream Uh, but then it turns out that what they were doing is playing a medley of songs by Cream and songs by Boston, uh, which is just like a very fun thing that they did. Uh, so yeah, I can't recommend listening to all 13 of those shows, uh, but specifically that one track uh, where they do a medley of Boston songs and Cream songs. Uh, and there's a great little quip that uh, from after that song that I will leave as a surprise to anyone who wants to check that out. Uh, great, yeah. Um, mine was also music. You don't have to say great. I just talked about fish for ninety seconds. I'm about to talk about Weezer for however long. So, wow, all right. Weezer's doing seasonal EPs this year. Um, it's the 30th anniversary of the band. So on basically the kind of first day of each season they are releasing an album as as of this recording spring just came out it begins with them like repurposing like Gervaldi's four seasons for a song that's like just it's basically about seeing Shakespeare in the park it's like classic classic Weezer nonsense Um, yeah but yeah it's a solid 20 minutes it's it's Weezer. It's it's pronounced seasons, but it's spelled S Z N Z or S Z N Z. You know, gotta give it both ways for mm-hmm. the listeners, which is just an insane I, way to so spell that I things. understand. Yeah, yeah. There's we haven't really talked about what summer is going to sound like, but uh, but the fall one, they're like, oh yeah, it's gonna be France Ferdinand style dance pop, like or dance rock, and winter 
it's gonna be like Elliot Smith sad acoustic stuff. So it's so yeah. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's my Weezer thing, and then try try to think if I have anything else. Um, the network sitcom is back. I've been yeah just wa- watching some of those lately. Uh, CBS's wildly popular Ghosts. I've seen a few episodes of that. Ooh, Abbott yeah, Elementary. Yeah, yeah. Brandon Scott Jones is really good in in Ghosts. He's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I haven't seen Ghosts. He is just wonderful. Uh, I have seen him do improv a number of times. Very fun. Yeah, man. he plays like a revolutionary general who is aghast to discover that his rival Alexander Hamilton has had like a musical made about him. <laughs> So part of the pitch is he's That's trying to make funny. Rose McIver's like a live person like write his autobiograph autobiography and then adapt it into like a hit musical. So I'm hoping That's that follows through. And it's also it's a show where they like have people from different periods. So it's like oh here's a na-, so it's like here's a Native American, here's a Viking, here's like a hippie from the days, here's like a robber barons, <laughs> like just all sure. all these different types. And yeah, it's fun. So. If you think all the good comedy is just on streaming services now, you know, give the network sitcom a try. You might be surprised to find it's back. So, I think at this point, it's going to come down to the edit, maybe, because there was some things, but... Wow. Coming to what I think you have taken on his birthday, no less, Jack's crown for longest episode. Um... So, Jesse, thanks for being on. It was really fun, yeah, even though thank I... Thank you for having me. This was great uh had much more fun recording the episode than i did watching any of these movies uh but very much worth it cool yeah yeah i'm glad you had more fun with this episode than with these movies (laughs) yeah it it was definitely fun talking about these so uh do you have anything you want to plug at this time uh no i've uh retired from i'm in my uh alec baldwin era i've retired from public life well, you'll be impersonating a president before we know it. Um, just yeah, I'm gonna call a uh, a uh, paparazzi a slur. Um, uh, Ben, what do you got to plug this week? Um, yeah, so um, I have my Twitter uh, at uh, gak gak g h a k g h a k, and I just have a link tree in that bio with all my other stuff. Um, for those wow fancy all right okay you can find me on twitter at like a wolverine you can find me on letterbox also at like a wolverine and there's a list of all the films we'll be covering along with sometimes i have my thoughts for them um yeah the theme song to the show which i can now acknowledge probably like three episodes after it's actually changed that it has officially changed so I believe the Dracula bit is still in there, but at the beginning now. So our new theme song is by Matt Samard, who's who he's not good at a lot of things, but he's good at making the music for this show, and I'm excited for people to get a chance to listen to that. Our artwork is by Ben, who's good at a lot of things, including making the art for the show, um, and Dracula impressions. Um, or, yeah. You can find the pod at gold popcorn pod on twitter or pass the golden popcorn on instagram or you can email us at pass the golden popcorn at gmail.com 
if you want to have a strong defense of fear or something. Yeah. Yeah. I'll come back if anyone wants to defend fear to fight them. Yeah. That's not true. The I movie don't, who again, don't remember don't at remember all. remember anything about that movie. <laughs> and all that's left to do now is talk about what's coming up. So next week, um, in, yeah. So, so next week for Best Villain 1998, the nominees are Nicolas Cage and John Travolta Face Off. Gary Oldman, Air Force One, Al Pacino, The Devil's Advocate, Billy Zane, Titanic, and the winner, Mike Myers in Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. Groovy, baby. Groovy. I've not seen a single one of those movies. I guess I hadn't seen any of these movies until I uh, did this episode. Oh, there. I'll say... Face Off and Titanic are like two of my favorite films ever made. Um, All right, and a good week coming up. It sounds like, yeah, potentially, potentially with a guest as well. Uh, yeah, uh, Jesse, thanks again for coming on. I'm yeah, absolutely. If, Thank I'm you glad that me. we now have a longest episode that doesn't involve a long talk about the movie Lolita <laughs> or Space Jam Two for that matter. Just um, mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about only good movies on this episode. That's what happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nearly three hours later. Um, Thanks for li- listening, everyone. And yeah, keep passing that golden, golden popcorn. And, you know, ju- just remember, um, I did not th- think of anything for this. Don't take sports episode. that seriously. Go outside. <laughs> it's warm now. I don't but know. do go to a, a baseball game. It's back. And yeah, uh, yeah it's they're, back. They're a lot of fun. It's back it's and it's completely to safe to be out. there. It's <laughs> safer than it is to be in a lot of places. I guess it will be particularly safe to go to the first few months of baseball games if you have recently had COVID-19 and built up antibodies, but I don't know who that could apply to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye!